This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, February the 2nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's producing the Kamau with an edition of the show. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM which is 86.26, so a relatively warmish day here in St. John's this morning. It was minus 2 when I got in the rig to come to work this morning. The most importantly, nice and calm, very little to no wind, so that's a good one. And February 2nd is one of those kind of bizarre days, you know, it's Groundhog Day. I don't pay much attention to Groundhog Day, and of course there's big celebrations in certain pockets of North America where they have their infamous groundhog make their appearance and so i can generally can't even remember the way it works so if the groundhog comes out and sees its shadow back into the burrow means six additional weeks of winter is that how the the myth goes or whatever it is anyway so it's groundhog day curiously like i've heard people say well it's not a really a big deal in this province we don't have any groundhogs but we do we have woodchucks woodchucks are predominantly found in southern labrador but they have been spotted on the island and the woodchuck is a groundhog. You know, originally when the Pennsylvania Dutch brought up this tradition or this myth or reliance on this groundhog appearance, which dates back to somewhere in the 1800s, apparently they really leaned on it, you know, talking about when they would plant their crops and those types of things. So in some parts of the country today in the United States, it'll be a big deal. Curiously, on the woodchuck business. Tongue twisters, when we were children, tongue twisters were kind of fun. And people were using them all the time to see who could spit out the woodchuck uh, tongue twister quickly and accurately but actors and singers and public uh, speakers they use tongue twisters on purpose to work on their pronunciation i'm terrible at it you know sometimes i really do fumble through the words and i guess that's just nature of the beast when you're thinking a million miles an hour and talking as fast as i do but how much wood would a wood chuck chuck if a wood chuck could chuck wood he would chuck he would as much as he could and chuck as much wood as a wood chuck would if a wood chuck could chuck wood not bad that one was pretty good. All right, let's keep going. Growlers back in action, Mary Brown Center, the first ever visit by the Indy Fuel. What a terribly named hockey team that is, Indy Fuel. And tomorrow night is K-Rock Night at Mary Brown Center. So you've been asked not only to come to the game, but when you do, wear your favorite rock band T-shirt. I don't know what's going to be involved with any sort of prize or what have you, but that's the deal. And, of course, it's the all-star break at the NHL last night. Some of the theater surrounding the drafting of players. All four uh, members of the Toronto Maple Leafs are playing on Team Matthews, of course they are. And there was a PWHL, the Professional Women's Hockey League Showcase, on tap as well last night. And a little reminder for those who are rugby fans like myself, if you want to watch the game with uh, uh, rugby fans like you, you can go to the Swatters Club, kickoff at 4.30 this afternoon, France versus Ireland. 20 bucks gets you a lasagna dinner and a pint. So there you go. Let's keep going. On this date in 1925, a dog sled reached Nome, Alaska with an urgently needed diphtheria serum. It later inspired the Iditarod race. I bring that up on purpose because later this month is supposed to be the 2024 edition of Kane's Quest, the snowmobile endurance race. Really cool event being held in Labrador last year, if you remember, between weather and unsafe conditions. It got canceled midway. 
there's still some concerns up in Labrador at this moment in time. People are showing me some pictures from the proposed route for the endurance race. Does not look conducive to snowmobiling. I don't know if anyone from Kane's Quest would like to join us on the show like they did last year after the postponement or the cancellation of the remainder of the race. You know, where are we? If you're in Labrador and you know what the route is, give us a call this morning and tell us exactly what you see because if there's going to be the potential for unsafe conditions, you wonder whether or not they're going to try and see if they can get through the race or there will be maybe a postponement or possibly, unfortunately, another cancellation because the pictures that I've seen are not looking great, but if you want to take it on, we can do exactly that. Now, yesterday on the program, a lady called with some concerns regarding the National Dental Care Program. And I'm not surprised that she really didn't know how the program was going to work. I would suggest it's been a poorly communicated issue on behalf of the federal government. So they can talk about $13 billion and 9 million uninsured Canadians, but the amount of confusion out there surrounding what could be a very helpful plan for people who need some dental care, because we do understand the uh, overlap between your dental health and your overall health, but it will incorporate all age groups eventually. So just one more time, just for the purpose of information, because I'm, I'm pretty sure there's still a lot of confusion out there in the general public. We know that the first group was 87 years of age and above, and that opened up in December of last year. Then they moved to 77 to 86, which happened last month. Then just yesterday, 72 to 76 opened up for, you'll get a letter in the mail with a personalized code for the application. Then next month, they moved to 70 to 71. Then in May, 65 to 69. And then three different categories. An adult with a valid disability tax credit certificate, that portal opens up in June of this year. Then its children under the age of 18 also begins in June. And then all remaining eligible Canadian residents will begin by the end of 24, the first part of 25. So it will be all-encompassing. Because the caller yesterday, she was pretty sure that it was only for seniors, period. But that's not the case. And the big complicating problem here is... I checked in on different provinces with their dental associations. They all have the exact same concern. There are no dentists or denturists or hygienists that are registered to uh, be part of this program as of yet. I mean, we're talking about treatments beginning in April or May, and yet no healthcare professional in the dental world is even enrolled in it, nor do they understand the administrative burden, nor do they understand how they're going to get paid. So no wonder there's confusion out there because the providers don't even know what's happening, let alone the rest of the Canadians the, inside the envelope of 9 million who might be eligible for the plan. But anyway, there you go. All right, to see a story here, and it's always worthwhile when we know there's a scam circulating that we bring it up on the show because we also understand that Canadians are milked out of tens of millions of dollars annually at the hands of scammers, whether it be online or otherwise. Now, apparently, out in the Bay Roberts area, someone is calling around saying that they're a member of the RCMP detachment in Bay Roberts trying to raise money for homeless women and children in the province. And it's not real. So if you get one of those calls, hang up and call the RCMP detachment yourself. The RCMP go on to say that, yes, they will get involved in things like food drives or what have you, but it's always a person with a uniformed officer and a marked cruiser on site. So that call that's circulating in and around Bay Roberts, it is a scam. Do not fall for it. Boy, people are relentless, aren't they? The whole scammer business. Anyways, keep going. So we've had a conversation with Jason Spingle at the FFAW about the redfish allocation. Newfoundland and Labrador harvester is going to see a slight increase to about 19% of the total overall catch. There was initial reports that that tack would be some 25,000 metric tons this year, but apparently the redfish committee is meeting today to try to figure out exactly how this uh, fishery is going to be executed. 
But former fisheries minister, current immigration minister, the member for Cornerbrook, Jerry Byrne, is not pulling any punches on how DFO arrived at this decision. So we know that Nova Scotia is going to receive 33% of the quota, Quebec 32%, New Brunswick 11%, PEI 5%, and we in and around 19 so the minister, I mean, here's, here's what he said. He said the DFO is intellectually and morally bankrupt in the decision-making. He said he was gobsmacked, enraged with the announcement. The basics of this, I'm not speaking for the minister, but the basics for the concern at the FFAW, the comments coming from Minister Byrne, is that, you know, with 30 years of this commercial redfish fishery shut down, and it's a difficult uh, product to catch, it's difficult to market, there's lots of work that has to be done to make sure that it's a a successful redfish season. So the federal minister, Diane Boutier, is basically encouraging a full ramp up for folks who are not currently prepared to go out and get the redfish. You know, talk about building boats and gearing up and building plants, you know, increasing capacity when there's already plenty of harvesters that are equipped, prepared, and ready to go after the redfish as opposed to trying to bring in new entrants. I mean, just look at historical context. We've done this repeatedly in the fishery. Uh, more and more people come in. You know, remember the old thought that, you know, too many boats, too many plants. Whether or not that was accurate, I'll leave it up to you. But if there's a fishery and a species like redfish that they had to shut down the commercial operations in 1995, bring it back today, and now all of a sudden, simply because of the strength of the spawning biomass that's on 4 million tons, now all of a sudden, to amp it up and ramp it up again, as opposed to simply involve those who are currently prepared, whether it be on the harvesting or the processing side, the federal minister has basically said, let's bring in as many entrants as possible. So what is the likely outcome? Really small individual quotas, the potential to devastate yet another species because of a possibly too aggressive stance that the federal minister is taking. So it's interesting to hear uh, former minister of fisheries, Jerry Byrne, talk in such definitive words about the DFO approach to that particular decision-making. And apparently... You know, we all remember what happened with last year's snow crab season and the six-week tie-up and all the emotions that were associated with it. And it was all based on price. So apparently I was told by a harvester, a full-timer, uh, who goes at the crab, that they're in day four of negotiations on the price. FFAW members, I'm told by this particular member of the union, is they have no earthly idea what's going on and worry that if members are not included and are you know brought up to speed as to where we are, what the price is looking like, what the percentage of the market price will be associated with harvesters and processors, he fears that unless this is done in a more transparent fashion, we might see a repeat of last year because there will indeed be harvesters and processors looking back a couple of years when the price was massive. And of course, it fell dramatically, some five, almost $6 a pound from the two years ago to last year. So if you're one of those harvesters, you want to bring forward your, cons your concerns. Let's go. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? Let's get her going here this morning. Couple of issues. Let's talk about Marystown for a second. And of course, there's massive concerns on the Buren Peninsula when it comes to job opportunities. Certainly some concerns and some uh, wonderment about there's a creation of a board talking about and evaluating and potentially promoting the onshore wind project brought forward by Everwind. And we can talk about that because here we are in that window where World Energy, for instance, has resubmitted a revamped environmental assessment. If you want to take it on, let's go. In Marystown, of course, when the Canning Bridge was shut down about a year ago, shut down the vehicle traffic, you can still ride your bike or walk across it. 
you know, major concern with for folks in the area, whether or not you think it's a big deal, folks in Marystown apparently do. So it really increased drive time for people who live on one side of the bridge uh, versus the other where, you know, most of the residential area is on one side. Some of the shops and the like are on the other side. So it's increased the weight, the drive time. Okay. So now the government is going to put forward a temporary solution, what they call a Bailey Bridge. And we've seen them utilized many, many times when we've seen massive washouts as a result of storms, what have you. But the question I have is, it was shut down a year ago, and of course you have to go to tender, and you have to have the bridge engineered designed. But the completion of the permanent bridge won't be completed until the fall of 2027. Maybe it's just me, but when I hear and see other similar types of bridge projects being taken care of in other parts of the country and the world, it seems that it doesn't take as long as what's happening in Marystown. If there's a reason that I'm missing here, then someone absolutely can fill me in, but not till 2027 will there be a permanent one. But I'm sure the residents will be happy that at some point this year, the temporary structure known as the Bailey Bridge will indeed be in place. And via email overnight, someone asked me how and why, this happens all the time, how and why certain issues have gone off the front burner here. And in this case, it was someone who wanted to talk about Crown Lands. Now, Crown Land, we can absolutely talk about it as it pertains to some of those onshore wind projects. We can certainly talk about it as it relates to your own personal property and possibly unbeknownst to you when you go to downsize and sell that you might not even own the land that your house is on. So, yes, I welcome the email to remind me of certain issues that you'd like to hear discussed. But it's always easier and better, I would suggest, that if you have concerns on one issue or another, you pick up the phone and give us a call, put it back on the front burner yourself. But this person wanted me to put the Crown Lounge back out there for your consideration. And so there you go. Okay, here we go. As of Monday morning, this coming Monday at 8 a.m., masking will be mandatory in all areas where clinical care is provided in healthcare facilities. So if you live in a long-term care facility, you won't be required to wear the mask all the time, but anywhere else where we're going to waiting areas, clinical care areas, visiting patients, long-term care residents, cloth masks and masks with exhalation valves are not permitted, but you're going to have to wear one of those surgical masks. Here's what's interesting. I'm not surprised. I mean, in other parts of the country, they reinstated masking in healthcare settings months ago. But the minister is quick to say that this is not a government or a ministerial decision. The recommendation, this is the quote, the recommendation was not from government or myself as minister, but we understand the recommendation and we understand the need for the recommendation. And of course, that was brought forward by the Infection Prevention and Control Team at NL Health Services. So for the minister to be so quick and wanting to separate government and his department from this decision is a real statement of how political something like a mask became. I mean, people were up in arms about masking. It was one of the real minor requests uh, or demands uh, put on the general public throughout the pandemic, but I guess it just got lumped in with everything else because it was a real long path and it was arduous and it was cumbersome and it was frustrating and angering and every other phrase you want to attach to it but the masking is now back in healthcare settings they're going to reevaluate it apparently on the 31st of march and if that's something you'd like to take on we can do it all right one based on a uh, the streeters that jerry lynn mackey did you know went out talking about cell phones in school which i think is a really good uh, conversation but what one lady mentioned was, you know, we just have such a different approach in schools these days. And one thing that she mentioned that jumped out to me was she said, we don't even teach children how to write anymore. 
I'm not 100% sure what the path is, but I do know we teach uh, children to print. And there are plenty of young folks out there that can't even read cursive writing. There's a big conversation to be had about something as fundamental as that. I would imagine most people don't even think about what it means to teach cursive writing, to understand how to do it and how to read it. But it comes with a bunch of issues that are well understood and documented scientifically. It helps with your retention and comprehension. It helps you work on your fine motor dexterity. It also helps you learn how to read and understand comprehension, how words work together. There are studies out there about how your brain operates versus tapping a keyboard versus trying to form the letters in cursive writing style because every letter is different and how they connect is different. And how we learn how to read based on having to perform that skill of cursive writing is important. Not because I say so. You just have a quick Google. There's all kinds of literature out there about the upside of writing, of, of handwriting. Now, my handwriting is really quite poor, but you think about it. When you have a pen or a pencil in hand and you're writing cursively, all of the aforementioned issues that I just mentioned also compare it or contrast it to how you're using the keyboard. You know, there's all sort of predictive software out there for the keys, and every key feels the same. There's no difference between uh, touching P or T, but there's a vast difference between writing P and T, and it comes with considerable impact on comprehension, retention, uh, your motor skills, how words work in combination, the ability to learn how to read, period, and how to spell. So I don't know if that's of interest to you, but as soon as I heard that lady say that, and I think I was listening to uh, Bob McDonald on Quirks and Quarks, and one of his guests was talking about the science behind cursive writing. Seems to me that if it has all of those upsides with your brain action and your brain activity and your ability to learn how to read and write and comprehend and retain, maybe, just maybe, we should give that some consideration as we look at this education accord. All right, very quick, last one or two quick ones. So the civil trial that was brought forward regarding the outcome of the 2021 election, of course, we all remember the fiasco that that became. And there was a court challenge being brought forward by former MHA Alison Coffin against Elections NL and CEO Bruce Chalk. And this was all about the difficulty people had in getting a mail-in ballot. So the results in three districts being challenged, St. John's North, St. Barbara's Meadows, and Signal Hill Kitty Vitty. If people are willing to challenge in the courts, and if the court is willing to hear it, fair enough. My question is, Let's just say Ms. Coffin and others who have brought forward these test cases are successful. What does that mean? Is there some sort of financial compensation? Because we're not going to go back and re-vote on the 2021 election. We've already had another general and a couple of pie elections. So I just wonder what the purpose necessarily might be of it. And sadly, here we are in the year of the arts. And yesterday we talked about the passing of Rick Boland. Had a nice conversation with Mary Walsh about him. And now yesterday we learned the passing of Kevin Lewis, who was also a big part of the arts, theater, TV, and movie community. I heard Mark Critchon with Jerry Lynn this morning talking about the life and times of Kevin Lewis and a funny line coming from Mark saying he always wanted to be known as Hollywood's first paper boy. But Kevin Lewis was a big deal in the arts community. I knew Kevin a little bit, and so condolences to his friends and his family so that yet quite another big knock here in the year of the arts for some of the big members of that community. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's take a break. 
When we come back after this break, we're going to be speaking with the commissioners of the inquiry into the care of Inu children. So that's uh, James Igliorte, Dr. Mike Devine, and Anastasia Kupi. We're going to hear about what they heard, what are next steps regarding the inquiry, because we do know it has been historically a big problem, whether it be the loss of culture and language, the treatment of, in, of Inu children in care, where that care takes place. So we'll let the uh, commissioners fill in the blanks when we come back. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, the commissioners involved with the inquiry respecting the treatment, experiences, and outcomes of Inu in the child protection system are James Igliorte, Dr. Mike Devine, and Anastasia Cupi, and they all join us on lines one, two, and three. Good morning to you all. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. It's very nice to be here. Good morning, sir. Thank you. We're happy to have you on the program. Uh, let's start with you, uh, uh, Judge Igliorte. So you spent plenty of time on the coast of Labrador from 1980 to 2004. So given your experience in the big land, what came out of the inquiry that maybe came as a surprise to you, if anything? Not really a great surprise in any way. I mean, on the... Uh, Circuit's work for uh, the 24 years you just uh, mentioned, and I was aware of the history of indigenous people, how uh, in many cases, for example, the people of uh, Hebron were forcibly moved to uh, southern communities and did not, uh, that experience did not work out well. And of course, for the Inu, we recognize that for much of their history, they moved to uh, the community of Chedarit, and that experience has not been a good one. So, uh, no, no big um, findings, but uh, clearly I had an understanding of what we would expect to see. Uh, Dr. Devine, as a former professor of social work at Memorial University, can you give us some historical context about how and when government started to intervene with Inu children and moving them out of the community and into child protective services? Because it wasn't always the way, obviously. Can you give us some historical context? Uh, yes, the, um, the Inu uh, were, were nomadic for a long period of time. And, for example, in Kinder Shensi, they settled there in 1967. Or Davis Inlet, there was an, an old Davis previous to the Davis Inlet and then Nefreshish today, and that was in the late 40s. So, um, you know, settlement was rather abrupt in those communities, and so they went from the nomadic way of life to, uh, to being settled and really, uh, you know, having that, that uh, I guess, loss of way of life. And then there was the, uh, you know, the influence at the time of the... Uh, the local priests in East of communities, as well as the state, by government, in terms of you know um, settling the people um, in their in, in a way that uh, certainly they believed, I, I guess that was better for them. But in actual fact, the outcomes of that uh, were a lot of disruption in the way of life, and the resulting trauma that happened for that. And then going from that with the intergenerational trauma that, uh, that we continue to see today. So, uh, you know, historically there, there have been some very negative effects that have, uh, that have taken place from that abruptness, if you like, uh, as one of the speakers last week talked about, and, uh, and they continue to struggle today. So it's now that there's some understanding of intergenerational trauma and people getting an understanding themselves of what happened and how it happened. And it's really interesting how when we, when people talk to us and tell their truth, uh, it's really, they go back to, go back to the source as opposed to just talking about the symptoms. 
So, you know, like child protection, for example, is very much a symptom of the trauma that they, they suffered historically. Anastasia, let's bring you into the conversation. You're a former Grand Chief of the Innu Nation. You serve as the Director of Social Health for Innu, First Nation. When these stories are already as traumatic as they are, and one of the concepts inside of the truth-seeking process and the healing services is to do no additional harm. How did you and your fellow commissioners and all presenters at the inquiry try to attend to it? Because when you retell a traumatic story, there is the concept or the potential to do more harm, to relive some of the terrible memories. So how did you consider approach that because that seems to be a really tricky piece of trying to get to the bottom of what happened and the next steps we are working and we knew that this was going to to be something that we need to think about because it's something that people were coming forward with their with their truths and their experiences and we understood like how, how some of the the events will be traumatic for people because of the history in our communities and um, so we are working with, and uh, we've been working with a mental health consultant, uh, Louise Bradley, and we've in the communities as well, the mental health supports that we have, and the elders at our meetings, uh, at our community sessions. So we've had uh, mental health supports, community supports available to people, and we make sure that people are aware of that at every session. And. Um, and we know, like, from the, the people's experience and, and our community experiences, that the events have been very traumatic and it wasn't going to be easy for people to come forward and, and talk about those uh, experiences. It's not easy to tell the stories. It's not easy to hear the stories like all three of you did. But for the general public who are not in Sha'iji and didn't hear the stories directly, maybe have heard some news retelling of uh, snippets of the story. For you, James, how do you want people to hear these stories? How do you want them to digest what has historically been happening to children in care, Inu children in care? Because for some people, I think we can all acknowledge that for some people, they won't give it much attention when it, in fact, it does, uh, it's due plenty of attention. How do you want people to hear the stories that you heard? Well, I think uh, one, of, one of the ways that's working so well is to speak with you and your audience of people across the uh, province. I mean, I've been met by individuals in a grocery store and people are saying that uh, the work you're doing is important and we should hear uh, how this history has evolved. So in our report, we're going to try to make a, uh, a way of writing that appeals to all individuals. And of course, uh, as, you, as you pointed out yourself, these difficult stories are ones that uh, people want to tell us, the organizations in, in Sahajit and uh, Natoshish want to tell us, and they're, they're uh, heartfelt. We appreciate uh, how difficult they are to tell, but uh, it's clear that we, we've got to get that message out, and, and one of the ways, such as uh, speaking with you today, is a way for us to uh, make people appreciate uh, how many people have, have been uh, adversely affected, how their mental health has been affected, and as a consequence, uh, how their whole community has uh, uh, been at the stage they're in today. Dr. Devon, I know that this is a big one. I don't want to get out in front of the eventual written report and recommendations, but what specifically are next steps? Well, we uh, continue to hear from people in the community, which is, a, 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 I think, a very important part of the process that we're going through. Uh, at community meetings, 
and also at the formal hearings that we had last week, that will continue. In addition to that, we'll be going and having roundtable discussions. So we'll talk about talk with leaders, uh, past leaders, informal leaders, elders in the community, and um, and people in the system who uh, who are familiar with the uh, with the child protection system. I think we, you know, one of the things that we've talked about uh, often, and we've heard from the community so often, is that you know this is we have to look at this in, ter- in the context of the whole community, not just child protection, and in the context of the history, so we can get a good understanding of you know how problems and issues came to be as they are today and continue today. And uh, you know, I wouldn't want to. I just sort of presuppose, as you suggested, what the final report will look like. But we really are, you know, listening to the community and uh, getting some uh, some very, you know, uh, good information in terms of their perspective and how uh, from their culture and how they uh, view and understand, uh, you know, community well-being, child protection, and how. Uh, you know, we can move or they can move to uh, having a healthy community. I'd like to pick up on what Dr. Devon just said with you, Anastasia. When we talk about it's not just about child protection, this is a community issue. What's the message to the community? Because we all play a role. You know, it takes a village, as they say. So how do you craft a message to the community that is not directly involved with the child protection system, but of course, unless the community is healthy and able to self-direct, that maybe just even recommendations and these types of inquiries might not get the inner community where they need to be. So what's your message? I think that uh, for both communities, continuing on the work that we're doing and hearing from people is important. And also that uh, working with the leadership and and, uh, and the work that they're doing as well um, down the road, that, uh, you know, people's um, goal is to run their own uh, child youth family services. And I think by, by learning the things that haven't worked for the, you know, and also culture and language play a significant role in that as well. And then making sure that the, pro- the programming and the services are met for Eno by Eno. I'll, I'll go Can down. I chime in as well, sure. uh, Patty. I want to say that uh, the, the uh, legislation up to this point has been worded so that uh, social workers have to react in the best interest of the child. And in many cases, that's, that has meant uh, saying that take the child out of a dangerous situation. And everybody agrees those circumstances occur. What we're trying to do is to listen to the Inu and their advice when they say, well, the best interest of the child doesn't necessarily mean uh, removing a child immediately. Think about the, the family, think about the culture, think about the language, think about the value of uh, being within your community whenever you can. So over the years, and more particularly in the last few years, the Inu have fashioned and framed a way of, uh, of speaking to uh, provincial officials and saying that uh, let's, let's move to a more uh, family, community-oriented process of defining best interests. Dr. Devine, last one for you. Has family reunification, which is always should be part of child protection, has the family reunification uh, standards and measures been different in the Innu communities versus the rest of society? Because that seems to be a, one of the real big tangles, and that might be speaking about the actual community responsibility in addition to the family responsibility. So has that re- reunification process been more complicated in the Innu nation? 
well, I think that you know, some of the issues that have come out of family reunification are, first of all, related to the whole um, uh, notion of you know, the, the, the rates of children in care. And in any community compared to the rest of the province, and the province has, has information that they provided on that, so that is much higher. So there are a number of children who are outside the community, for example, today. And uh, so family reunification is certainly being, I think, more on the table and talked about. Uh, you know, how that process goes, we, we will see. But I think, you know, for the uh, prevention services that have been in place, I think about five years now, and the prevention service are with uh, in your round table. Uh, that's the government, one of the governing bodies up in you. That uh, that they really they're working more work more now collaboratively with CSSD and prevention services, so that they look for you know creative, innovative, and, and ways to try to keep the children in the community uh, at home if possible, but certainly in the community where at all possible. And so I think there's much more of a focus today on on that notion of the importance of you know children in the community maintaining their culture and their language and their way of being. So so there's already some work happening there, and I think that you know again with with I, I believe myself and this is my own bias that you know a strong uh, prevention programs, not just one program, but different programs and options for children who might be at risk or high risk that. Uh, the community, I think, agrees that uh, you know that needs to be uh, certainly a continued and very strong focus. Would either of you like to offer a final thought before we run out of time? Well, thank you. I think on behalf of all the commissioners, uh, we're so excited to have had the opportunity to uh, speak uh, through your medium. Of course, we use uh, many forms in our meetings. And uh, when we when we talk to individuals, but we simply uh, want to say that uh, as the Inu work towards taking control over child protection, we uh, want to be you know, the venue that uh, gives recommendations that will allow that uh, to be the final outcome of our uh, report. I appreciate the author of you making time for the program this morning. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Take good care. Anastasia QP, James Igliorte, and Dr. Mike Devine. And, of course, we're talking about the inquiry, respecting the treatment, experiences, and outcomes of Inu in the child protection system. Let's take a break. As I mentioned at the bottom of the preamble, you know, after the story of the passing of Rick Boland, then we hear the story of the passing of Kevin Lewis. Linda Fraser is the curator of the Holyrood Heritage Society Museum. She joins us right after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the curator of the Holyrood Heritage Society Museum. That's Linda Fraser. Good morning, Linda. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. That was a hard day for us here. Uh, Rick Bolden, number one. Uh, Rick Nolan was a friend who lived in tea trees. I lived in Curling. I could see his house from our living room window. He was a riot, a very sincere, honest person. I don't know what else to say about him. He was just magnificent, very humble. And now today we're faced with the loss of Kevin Lewis. I'm sitting here in the museum, and when we started this museum approximately five years ago, it'll be five years in um, in July, in June, 
of this year. And when we started, I um, talking to my husband, who was a uh, with the Quantum Book Playmakers at the time, and he said, uh, "Why don't we do an exhibition on theater and the music?" He said, "In um, in this area, Conception Bay Center. This is the five communities from Holyrood down through to Colliers." And I said, "That's an idea for one of the rooms." And uh, he said, uh, "Call Clara Doyle." And I said, "Clara." And he said, "Yes." He said, "Call Clara." That was a funny, funny conversation. Clara didn't have a clue who I was. So anyway, Clara said, "Okay, I'll come up and see what you want." Of course, museums don't have any money. All these little museums, we don't have any money. We depend on the on an entrance fee. So Clara came up and he said, what do you want? I said, I want the people who were in theater in this area to be honored in one of our rooms that we have here. And he said, okay, let me see what I can do. How much money have you got? I said, no. <laughs> so they all, all that crowd in theater, they all have a sense of humor, right? And they're all in the same, all artists are in the same position as, as we are. So Clara went to work, and uh, between him and uh, a few other articles that we had, we managed to uh, get some original programs that date back to plays that were attended to here in the Star of the Sea and, and in the community schools. But here this morning, I'm looking at Kevin Lewis's photo on our wall, along with uh, Dabnett Doyle's photo, Jerry Doyle's photo, uh, Jonathan Lewis, and oh, so many more of the people who um, made theater what it is today in our province. Kevin is here now in this black background photo, and he's looking at me as if he's playing the role of a villain, and I know he must be saying, Linda, what are you doing? Clara took it under his wing to take the pictures from the various plays, stories behind them, the fun they had, the, the comedy they had, how they riled each other. He took everything together and he made, we have three walls displayed here to theater. Plus we have some of the winning silverware that used to be given out at one time. I don't believe it's given out anymore at the provincial drama festivals, but other, other trophies that were made by some of the play of the people in the plays. And we have them here. They were donated to us and they're on display here in our museum. So calling this morning to pay respects to the first paper boy in the town of Hollywood is very hard. And that from Hollywood, but I've been here for 20-odd years, and I'm telling you, it's, it's a wild experience. The theater experience is told was here, representing our museum and Holy Road, like I said, is displayed on our wall. Kevin was master of his craft. Uh, one of the first visits that he made here in our museum, he came with Clara Doyle. And Clara was going around, and he was telling myself and... Kevin, um, why he chose these plays, why he chose these people to be honored in our museum. I didn't didn't recognize Kevin at the time because um, he had aged quite a bit since I had seen him. And he just stood back. He let Clara explain everything. Clara would turn around and get approval like from Kevin as if he needed approval, but he did. There was so much respect among all of these this, this theater-going crowd. And uh, Kevin just, he never spoke. He never said anything. He never took any of the praise, any of the accolades. He just took it all in quietly. And um, and to see his picture on the wall this morning, and I just felt that 
I had to call in on behalf of our museum and the people from these communities who have so many people uh, involved in theater in our province. Um, <laughs> am I going on too much? No, not at all. I'm just uh, just listening along, Linda. You know, you mentioned yeah. the Paperboy. <clears throat> it was actually the title of his memoir, which was published maybe almost 10 years ago, possibly. So he was quite yeah. proud of that. He was on Holyrood's uh, town council in 1969, taught for yeah. some 30 years. You know, of course, since early 2000s, he was intimately involved in directing and acting in the Dinner Theatre out in Fairyland. Uh, last fall, he received the Actra NL Award of Excellence, which, you know, is yeah. a pretty prestigious award. Past winners include folks like Greg Malone and Andy Wall, Andy Jones, Mary Walsh, Chris Brooks. So he's in pretty uh, lofty uh, company there. You know, about 30 years in the business. You know, the boys from St. Vincent, uh, The Grand Seduction, Misery oh. Harbor, <laughs> Random Passage, Heyday, Brave, and just a few that I can think of off the top of my head. I knew Kevin a little bit. I thought, thought he was a fine fellow. Oh, he was. He was. And um, he was sincere. He made he made comedy. He was he was the king of of theater, of comedy, of drama, of everything, every aspect of the theatrical life. Uh, so I just want to say uh, we're here. We will honor him and and uh, forever. He's here looking at me now. <laughs> and along with other players, so many players, John Ryan was another Another character, the Larrises, the Woodfords, the Bennets, the Doyles. Uh, there's just so many of them here. You can't you can't just pick one. But today, especially, we're picking on um, on um, our friend Kevin and as well. I'm not forgetting Rick Boland. He was a distant relative of mine. And uh, so I just want to end it by saying to everybody that's out there, and not even people that are involved with these particular people we spoke about this morning. Just remember, to live in the hearts of those we love is to live forever. Thank you very much for this, Linda. I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you so much. Take good care. And our, our respects from, from our museum, from all of our volunteers, and I'm sure the town of Holyrood as well. Thank you, Thank Linda. You. Stay in touch. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yes, a couple of big losses back-to-back days. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Daphne wants to talk about garbage collection. We're going to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Dorinia. You're on the air. Yes, how are you today? I'm doing okay. Did I pronounce your name properly? Yes, Dorina. Dorina. Welcome to the show. Yeah. Uh, yes, I have um, a little thing. I've I've been living in freshwater now for 28 years. And freshwater presenter bay. Yep. I bought a quad, a uh, a Honda, and on uh, the twenty two thousand twenty three six fourteen. She's been in my yard ever since. Friday, Thursday night, somebody came and stole her from me. <sighs> boys, oh boys. And um, they took everything. They took my plow. I just put my plow on her. I've got a 33-year-old daughter that's got spine bifida. I can't shovel. I just got diagnosed with cancer. And somebody had the gall to come in my yard and take my bike. You got to lock things down around here, don't you? It's terrible I stuff. Did. She oh. was locked down. Oh, no, I, I, I was just using that as a turn of phrase. I'm not suggesting that you did anything wrong, Doreen. Of course not. So describe your Honda ATV, you know, like the color and what badge level it is and the plow, those types of things, so we can have people keep their eyes peeled for them. 
She is a green Honda. She is a 2016. And she did leave fresh water at 4.30 that morning. And people seen her go out Argentia Road to Whitburn. She was gassed up at North Atlantic. And they claim they can't find anything on the cameras. That's strange. You would think that with all that type of information, someone might have captured some sort of shot of that person, that criminal. Yeah. There was two young fellows, Anna. No helmets, no nothing, speeding out Argentia Road. She's got a yellow plow on her. She's a green bike. She's, she's a beautiful bike. And she's got a big back seat on her. And it's special work done to her because I did special work for her for her. So my handicapped daughter could sit on her with me. Right? So everyone in the area that's listening to this call, it's a green Honda 2016 yellow plow on a special big back seat. So if you see that, you know anything about where that bike is, call the police. Let's see if we can't get Darina back her, her ATV and her plow for all the obvious reasons. I'm sorry this happened to you. Yes, this is this is ridiculous. It is. And like I said, she's been out there ever since. Right? And and nobody's touched her. And I got up Friday to go in for my chemo and went out and my bike's gone. Well, let's hope this is nothing more than a couple of nuisances went on a joyride and have just left her somewhere so that we can get it back to you. So everyone keep we your hope. eyes peeled. Yes. And thank you very, very much. You're, you're, uh, you're most welcome. Keep me in the loop. Let me know. Oh, I will. Okay, Darina. Take care. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Yeah, people buy. Oh, man. Let's keep going. Line number one. Daphne, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? Oh, I'm not too bad. I'm a bit pissed off. Um, uh, <laughs> having trouble with our garbage here in northwest Brooklyn. It seems like it's only us having the problem. Everyone else gets their garbage picked up except us. It's been three weeks now, and no garbage has been picked up for us. Uh, yesterday was garbage day. The cell wasn't picked up. I called waste management, and all they're telling me is that I'll have to wait until next garbage day to get the garbage picked up. So, so I'll have to wait until next Thursday, and that'll be four weeks garbage. Yeah, so um, obviously that's a nuisance. So are you well off the beaten track or something, or why are they not grabbing your garbage in particular? Well, I don't know. Like, I mean, they did it before. Like, they know there's garbage there to be picked up. So, like, I don't know why they're not doing it. Like, I can't get no answers. Like, we're paying our garbage fees. Like, I, I just don't understand it. Yeah, I mean, if it's just starting to happen now out of nowhere someone must know why i mean whether they got a new driver who's not aware of where you live or where your garbage box is or something but it seems quite strange that all of a sudden out of the blue for four consecutive weeks no garbage picked up weird one and i was into waste management and she and all she tells me is i'll get in contract i'll get in touch with the contractor and see what we can do but in the meantime you'll have to wait until next garbage day rolls around so I waited until the next garbage day rolled around, which was yesterday, and still no garbage picked up. So I don't know where to turn. I don't know who else to call. So I don't know. Like, I'm at a wit's end. 
Yeah, and I don't know if there's anyone who's going to be able to grab it for you and bring it to the dump, but I'll see if I can figure it out. Daphne, you send me a, another message privately like you do sometimes and give me some specifics about exactly where you live and I'll make a couple of calls, see what I can find out. Okay, thank you so much. You're welcome, Daphne. Okay, you have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you. Bye. Yeah, there's got to be some reason, even if it's a dumb one, but let's see if we can figure it out. Uh, let's go to line number two. Sylvia, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. It's been a while mm-hmm. since we talked. Um, when I talked with David, it was about a specific um, thing about a young man but I was wondering if you could find out for me, because I've asked the authorities, like there's just two new houses with four units in each one down on Janeway Place. It took six weeks to get cable to go there because they, there was no such uh, civic address. There's no mail because there's no such civic address, no garbage collection, and there's no street lights down there. I've called, uh, I spoke with the city, and they said it was Newfoundland and Labrador housing's problem. And I've called Newfoundland and Labrador housing, and they said it was the city. I've gone in on Canada Post, and they say no such resident. So could you find out for us what actually is happening? What exactly are you hoping I can find out, Sylvia? I'm sorry. These two houses are not set up anywhere as residential. That they're there in that on that street. Well, if it's in the confines of the city of St. John's, the city can't tell you they have nothing to do with because it's a residential street and house in the city. It may indeed be owned and built and managed by Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't get a an address because of a municipal action. So I suppose I can ask the city for further understanding or clarification here. I'm happy to do that much. I mean, I, I went into Canada Post and uh, under their app, and it came back no such civic address. Okay, so let me see what I can figure out. So what what numbers, are there numbers on the house period down on Janeway Place? Yes, 35. Yeah. And 37, A, B, C, and D for both of them. 35 and 37, Janeway Place. Okay, let's see what I can figure out. Uh, it's just about time for the news. Sylvia, anything else quick? Yes, I have. we have a young fellow that um, needs a bit of help, but I don't want to put no big shout out, but he's there living with just a bed. And he has nothing in his house. He was just given the key. And um, we we have linens for just the bed, for the bed and that, and some kitchen stuff. But he has nothing, no mats, no nothing. Yeah, you can try home again, furniture bank. That's we, over. We were there. We were there, Patty. Okay. Well, then, I, the Habitat for Humanity? No. We're after spending a fortune, okay, on four other people, and this is another one that we've taken on. We have linens, we have some curtains and everything for him, but he, there are things that he needs, even though he's in a wheelchair, you know, and he said his people were going to take care of him, he's Inuit, and no one came out out of the Inuit community or indigenous community to help him. 
I wish I could point you in the right direction, but the two uh, options that I had at the tip of my tongue, you say they've not ha- not been helpful. So maybe First Light, if we're talking about indigenous issues, I know that you've right, complained we, about them before. I, I, I do have to get to the news, Sylvia. So another. Okay, that's no problem, Patty. Okay, thank you. Take good care. Uh, if we could think about any other options, we'd be happy to offer them. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, yesterday we had a call talking about the CFIB's Provincial Red Tape Report Card. Join us on line number one is the Atlantic Senior Policy Analyst with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. That's Duncan Robinson. Duncan, you're on the air. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on the show. So we don't necessarily have to get into the methodology, but we're talking about regulatory accountability makes up 40% of the eventual grade. Regulatory burden, 40%. Political priority. Help us understand exactly what's involved in political priority. Is it simply attention to red tape and regulatory issues and timelines? What exactly does that mean? Well, absolutely. Well, what we want to see is we want to see a priority across um, all levels of of the uh, the provincial government. So, the, from the premier's office to the to the mandate letters and the uh, the, the ministers as well. Um, also, um, wanting to make sure that they're including it in their budget, that they're mentioning it, that they see it as a priority, um, and that's in the election platform as well as an overall kind of a guide for the, the the government for the next four years. Um, in Newfoundland, unfortunately, it was not in the mandate letters of the um, minister. It also was not in the budget, but it was in the election platform. So they did get partial points for that. Um, however, there is definitely more work to do on the, the political side of things. So in the world of red tape, of course, because this can be all-encompassing to different industries, different sectors of the economy, is there a specific focus inside this red tape report card? Um, not in the report card itself. However, this year we did release a report f- uh, focused on the red tape associated with permitting and approval processes in Canada's largest municipalities, which St. John's was included in. Um, just kind of showing that even a simple um, project like a bathroom renovation can have some serious red tape associated with it. Um, and the, the kind of impact that has on the larger side of things in terms of the housing shortage as well. So if your processes are slow for small projects, you can only imagine how slow they are for the larger projects as well. So in this province, there's an F in regulatory accountability, an F in the burden zone, a D in political priority, an overall score of F, which is dreadful. Help us understand what our best practices in, in other regions of the country, because Alberta A's across the board. So what do they do differently? Give us some specifics as to how those report card uh, grades come out at A's when we're so far behind with an F. Absolutely. We well, don't even have to look as far as Alberta. Um, if we look in Atlantic provinces, Nova Scotia sure. received an A as well. Um, and particularly for Nova Scotia as well, they, a lot of their work has been driven by uh, the Office of Regulatory Affairs and Service Effectiveness. So they have a, a dedicated staff who's wholly focused on cutting red tape around government, which is very important, as well as, as ensuring that the, the government is measuring and reporting on annually the amount of red tape and burden that they place on small businesses so they're held accountable and that small businesses and, and Canadians as well can see the impact that that's having. So just making sure that they're being accountable to themselves but also to the public. And reg- and um, also, um, we also measure uh, interprovincial trade barriers. So making sure that, you know, it doesn't make sense that you, that the, the rules that apply for Newfoundland are different than Nova Scotia, than Alberta, than B.C., making sure that we have a smooth economy throughout, you know, coast to coast to coast is also important and something that we've been advocating for through this uh, report card. 
card as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll dig into that now in a second. But in the world of red tape, it's very much akin to affordable housing. It's a catch-all. So what, how do you define red tape? Because if you're trying to deal with the municipality, get a permit to you know, renovate a bathroom or to put on a deck or to add onto your home or put up a shed, it can become time-consuming and frustrating. So how do you actually define red tape? Because red tape uh, begins the moment that you open your mouth or send an email to any level of government. So how do you define it? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's duplicative, uh, sorry, duplicative processes, um, anything that is, you know, redundant, um, things that can be, you know, unnecessary, particularly when we look at, at red tape as a whole, according to our membership, um, only, you know, 30% of the red tape as a whole is seen as unnecessary. So it is making sure that, you know, you're identifying duplicative. Um, that you're making sure that you're not being redundant, that you're being as streamlined as possible. Um, Particularly if we look at St. John's and you're trying to do a bathroom renovation, it really shouldn't take six different forms and over $500 to get that project, you know, approved before you can even move a tile. So things that just seem like, you know, common sense and things that should, you know, not be there to, to really clog up the processes, um, not just for small businesses, but for, for um, you know, Newfoundlanders as a whole as well. So beyond the frustration associated with bureaucracy and red tape, what do we know about the economic impact of this issue? Absolutely. Well, you know, um, time is money for, for small businesses, but unfortunately when we look at government, time is often not money in their eyes. Um, so it has an impact. If we look at the permitting side of things as well, if you're a contractor, um, usually you're paid at the end of your project. So the longer it takes to get that project done, the longer it takes to get the, the money back for, for the work that you've done. Additionally, you're taking loans out or lines of credit to pay for that material. Um, so the longer that takes, the longer that builds up as well. And we just want to make sure that government is getting out of the way of small businesses when it comes to unnecessary paperwork. Um, we can look at also, you know, the healthcare sector. There's numerous amounts of red tape there as well. Um, we look at unnecessary paperwork for physicians. We 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 um, measured that in 2023, it, around 18 billion um, hours is wasted on paperwork that could be done by someone else or could be taken away as a whole. So it doesn't just impact the economic side of things, but it impacts really the the well-being of of, uh, Newfoundlanders as well. Let's take an interprovincial trade for a second. That's something that really doesn't get a lot of attention. You know, there's been, for instance, the Montreal Economic Institute did a report on it that I read some years back. And they're talking about things like an estimated 7% additional cost of the goods and services in the country simply because of these arbitrary provincial trade barriers. They're also talking about the impact on Canadians' wages. You know, reduces incomes by almost 6%, I think, or $1,800. And that was back in 2017 or 18 when they did that work. Help people understand what these restrictions look like. Because the cost to Canadians, when we talk about an overall economic impact, is costing us billions of dollars a year extra out of my pocket because there's been a restriction set up to protect my brewing industry or the wine industry. And some of the moves that have been made to ease have been very fundamental and very easy and simple about the amount of beer I can take from one province to another. Help people understand what these barriers are really meaning to my pocketbook. Absolutely. Well, it increases the cost of a lot of things. Anything, you know, like you said, alcohol that's being imported, but not just to the pocketbook as well, but labor mobility is something that we're highlighting as well. Making sure that if you're a doctor, if you're a plumber, if you're a nurse, if you're if you're registered in one province, it, it makes sense that that training would be similar to the rest of Canada as it is one healthcare system in, in, a, in a sense. Um, and then in terms of, again, your pocketbook issues, you know, bringing in things, you know, there's a sugar tax in, in St. John or in Newfoundland as well, bringing in sugary 
free uh, drinks as well. So it's it's really an impact overall. Um, but again, through Red Tape Awareness Week, we're highlighting some some key issues, like you said, interprovincial trade, like permitting, like healthcare last year, just to make sure that that government understands that we need to have again like a smooth economy across Canada, taking down unnecessary um, uh, restrictions between inter- interprovincial trade um, as well as, as so many other things. So that's what this week is really about, and we're excited that that people like you are, are highlighting this issue as well as your callers, which is great to hear, um, and making sure that we're we're passing that on to government as well. Back in 2017, the country signed the Canadian Free Trade Agreement. That was supposed to address and to tackle this particular issue, but it fell off the radar. Is that simply a shortcoming or, you know, provincial leaders, premiers in particular, standing up to protect their own? Or how come that trade agreement did not tackle this issue? Well, you know, there is a sense of, of protectionism in that way. Um, some provinces um, have, uh, they, they put in exemptions to the CFTA. Um, so on certain industries, they say, you know, this this, this uh, CFTA will not apply to um, things like you know, like wine sales or things like alcohol, like you said, or or industries that they believe that should be protected in their province. So it's it's definitely um, odd to think that, you know, essentially Canada's trading like they're the European Union, different rules in different provinces when we are one country and we should ensure that every economy is booming and that the money that we're losing from these unnecessary um, trade restrictions in our own country um, should really be brought down to make sure that it's it's you know the the rising tide lifts all boats yeah and i would add to that you know things like east west cooperation and participation and things like the electric grid and things that would make a lot more sense as opposed to utilities trying to stand their ground and the federal government being unwilling to deal with something that is costing me personally thousands of dollars each and every year. The impact on the overall economy is serious. 7% to all goods and services, and that's a report of some six years ago. So that number could have only grown given all the inputs uh, that we see. Uh, Duncan, final thoughts to you. Yeah, well, on, on that point um, for interprovincial trade, you bring up good points about east and west cooperation. Um, the Atlantic provinces today even are going to be uh, receiving the golden scissors for their work to cut red tape around labor mobility for physicians. So prior to, to the Atlantic Physician Registry, if you were a doctor in, in Nova Scotia, you had to apply to each Atlantic province if you wanted to, to practice there. You'd have to pay fees of $2,000 a year um, through the cooperation in Atlantic provinces. Now, if you're a doctor in Newfoundland or Nova Scotia or New Brunswick or PEI, you make one application, you pay $500 a year, and they can move wherever you'd like in Atlantic provinces and, and practice healthcare. So things like that are things that we're definitely celebrating this week. Um, and we really appreciate you and your callers um, highlighting this issue and making sure that everyone's, everyone, everyone's hearing it as well as government. Yeah, I mean, even if I'm a dentist, I mean, there's not even a dental school here, but, I, you know, I have to re-register and apply to work in a different province. We've done some good work, I think, on Red, red Seal skilled tradespeople's and with doctors, as you just mentioned. Those are things that should not be the exception. They should be the rule. It's good to have you on the show, Duncan. Appreciate the time. Anytime. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Duncan Robinson, the CFIB Atlantic Senior Policy Analyst. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Barry, you're on the air. Good day, Barry. This is Barry Greenham. Um, I'm just calling. Uh, it's my first time calling. I'm just calling about the oil tank that I installed a couple of years ago. I had a professionally installed tank. Okay. And uh, it cost three thousand dollars to get it installed. Like, and uh, now it's a little bit late, but I'm going to be putting in a couple of heat pumps this summer coming. And I want to take that tank out. So, you know, it's it still good to 2046. But they're saying that um, I got a couple of people interested in this tank, so you know I could maybe I could get back to recoup some of my money. 
uh, but they're saying they won't recertify that tank. I can understand it if it was 20 years that it was, you know, in, in, in service 20 years, and then they wouldn't recertify it. But just being only two years, I don't understand why I can't resell that tank to someone else. Yeah, nor am I, do I understand why anything has to be recertified if it's already certified in 2046, is I think the number you just used. So I don't really understand how that that's an issue anyway. Yeah, because like you said, I, I called I called the company and uh, and they're saying that no, they won't recertify it. But uh, again, like I said, you know, three thousand dollars. If I could recoup, you know, even a thousand dollars of that back and plus help the other person out, you know, I don't understand why I got to dispose of this brand new tank that's only been there two years. It don't make sense to me, right? Well, for instance, the company that you bought it from, will they buy it back from you, or their or your oil provider? Uh, no, I don't think so. No, they just said they won't recertify it. But I, but I never asked them would they buy it back. Now I never asked that question. But they said they will not recertify it. Yeah, because I would imagine if they'd be willing to buy it back, then in-house they'd have some sort of internal process for recertification and resale. I would think. You would think. I never asked that question, but I will ask that question because, like I said, it don't make sense to me, right? There's an email address, you know, when all the issues regarding the registration of heating oil storage tanks, there is a government uh, email address specifically for it. Maybe you can get some additional information there. I can give you the address if you like. That'd be great, Jim. Sure. It's just petroleum storage. Okay. And then it's just the, uh, the last part is all the government email addresses. So it's petroleum storage at gov.nl.ca. Perfect. Thank you very much. You might be able to get some more information. If, the, if you don't get anywhere with that, get back to me and I'll try something else. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Barry. You're welcome, Barry. Bye-bye. And, you know, so he mentions mini splits and heat pumps and stuff. And, of course, there's tons of money out there. And it's always worth putting this out for people's consideration. So in the oil, oil, oil to heat pump affordability program, and that's a federal program. My understanding is even if you install a central heat pump in that program, you do not need to remove the oil tank. But like everything else, if you're going to consider making these moves, what you absolutely have to do in an effort to understand, look, we mentioned yesterday at the Canada Greener Homes Grant, up to $5,000, that's going away because the money's been depleted. They thought that would be in place for uh, until 2027, but not so fast. So that's a problem. But for every other pot of money, there's provincial monies, there's federal monies, they all come with different requirements of an assessment of your home, an energy audit, whether or not you just build, take charge directly, and or you can wait for a rebate. So just in an effort to understand all of those, whoever you're going to buy the product from, Ask them to walk you through all the pots of money. In addition to that, it is critically important to tell your insurance provider exactly what you're considering doing because they'll tell you whether or not that lines up with your current insurance on your home. Because, you know, they'll talk about you can't use one source of heat as your primary source, for instance. So just make sure that you dot all those I's, cross all those T's before you spend any money or you get too far down the path. And all of a sudden you find out, like many people have, is that come the end of the day, all of a sudden, your insurance company tells you, I can't insure your home, given your current source of heat. So just make sure you do those things before you make any moves on that front. Let's go to line number five. So good morning to the mayor of Marystown. That's Brian Keating. Mayor Keating, you're on the air. Good morning. How are you today? I'm doing okay this morning. How about you? Uh, it's a good day uh, since yesterday with the announcement from uh, Minister Abbott. It's a great day, actually. So now that they're going to go ahead and put the Bailey Bridge, the temporary bridge, in place, wasn't that always a conversation right from the get-go when they shut down the Canning Bridge about a year ago? And oh, if not, definitely. why not? 
Oh, definitely. It was uh, uh, actually on uh, three days after the bridge was closed, myself and uh, uh, several councillors drove to St. John's and met with uh, then-Minister uh, Elvis Loveless, and uh, that was one of the first things we inquired about. And uh, So, yes, it's been ongoing for a while, for sure. <laughs> What's involved in build, uh, putting a Bailey Bridge there, do you know? Well, right now, of course... Uh, they got to do uh, an approach on both sides, on the south side and north side. In other words, you got to build out into the water uh, uh, with a rock road to come out because the largest barely bridge you can get is 210 feet. Uh, so they're going to have to build out roughly about 60 to 70 feet on both sides. So there's some per, uh, permitting uh, requirements from DFO, of course, is, uh, where everybody knows the inlet of Marystown there is also Salmon River. So, uh they got to get the permits in place and stuff. And uh, first, uh, a lot of people have been asking me, how, well, how come it took almost a year? Well, you know, they've been doing analysis on um, when we first come out, we had a coalition from the town come in and said, you know, we could put a Bailey Bridge there for 800000 And, of course, now the number is $5 million, 5 to $6 million. So uh, they've done an evaluation on which would be the most feasible way to relieve their stress and their financial burden on the residents of Marystown. So, and, and being in the municipal government, you know, things are not the fastest in provincial, municipal, or federal. But uh, right now, I'm not so much concerned about what happened in the past. It's just how long it takes to get it done in the future. Fair enough. You know, I made mention off the top, and I'm not a civil engineer. I've never built a bridge or paved a road. But it seems to me like when I see stories in other jurisdictions about replacing bridges or repairing bridges, it doesn't come with the extensive timeline like we're talking about in your community. We're not talking about the completion of the permanent bridge until the fall of 2027. Has anyone ever walked you through why it's going to take as long as that? Because I know you have to go out to the uh, out to tender. I know you have to engineer and design, and then you have to consequently build. But that seems like an awful long road. Well, if you look at it, and yes, it's definitely a long time, but uh, there's a couple of scenarios, and a lot of people are asking me the same question. First thing, the reasoning why it's going to take be pushed back to 2027 is the Bailey Bridge must be uh, completed and open to the general public for the pedestrian walking. Right now, if we take one bolt, and I know that might sound a little little funny, one bolt, but right now we're still using the Canadian uh, Canada, Canning Bridge, sorry, uh, for pedestrian traffic. If we take any demolition on it right now, uh, we wouldn't have pedestrian traffic bound to use the bridge. So right now, uh, the Canning Bridge demolition will not start till the day that the Canning, the new Bailey Bridge is open, so pedestrians can walk as well. So that's actually why I pushed it back another year. It comes with a pretty heavy price tag when we talk about the combination of the Bailey Bridge and the permanent bridge. So about $25 million in total. Five to six for the temporary bridge, 18 to 19 for the permanent bridge. So pretty big number. Not to say that it's not needed because obviously it is. It's been in place for quite a long time. But a resident of your community has told me via email they think they think this is a waste of money because we're talking about an additional say 10 to 12 minutes to drive from one side to the other. So speak to the need for the Canning Bridge because is it simply about the frustration or why is this such a vital component in Marystown? It's a very vital. It's a, one of the main arteries. It's actually why the town of Marystown uh, flourished and grew. That bridge was uh, a part of the staple of uh, Marystown for, since in the 60s. But I'll put it to you this way. It's not only the, the time, and of course that time quota is not the correct time. If you drive from one end to the other, you know, it's actually uh, 
uh, 12, 13 kilometers and with traffic and stuff and increase the traffic because everybody's using that one road now. Uh, the, the timeline is uh, one thing, but the financial burden on extra gas, uh, extra wear and tear in your car, lease vehicles, extra kilometers. But there's also mental health uh, that people don't look at. When you go under stress, when it costs you an extra couple hundred dollars a month in gas, to uh, go to uh, your job because, like as you, Patty, you're well aware, Marystown is relayed on the north and south side. Mostly the south side is mostly residential and commuters. Most of the business areas are on the north side. So, and they, most of these blue collar workers and stuff, when you take an extra $200 or $300 a month to get back and forth to work, that's $300 that you got to stress and worry about where to get to pay for their heat bill, their light bill, and stuff. And, and this time is made out of mostly people on the south side. Well, the whole region now is mostly fixed income seniors. We're an aging population in Marystown. And that $300 may sound like to somebody that's uh, making eighty-five dollars and $90,000 a year. But when you're making sixteen dollars to $18,000 a year, it puts another stress burden on you. And also, a lot of people now are not realizing that people are going to see their loved ones or senior parents or people in the, the senior homes. Uh, they don't make so many trips. So that affects those people as well. So the domino effect alone, not only the time, the financial and the mental stress on the on the residents of Marystown, uh, this was definitely needed. And a $25 million tax, uh, tax hit or uh, bridge uh, money for the two bridges, yeah, is a big number. But I'd be the first to say that the residents of Marystown and the Bjorn Plancer are, are definitely worked for their mental health, their financial stability, and the future of the town of Marystown of Glensa is definitely worth $25 million, in my opinion. Mayor Keating, let's take uh, another subject here. My understanding is you're the chair of the Bjorn Peninsula Energy Board. How was that board created? How do people get uh, members as boards of directors? Because was there open to voting or were people simply appointed or by acclamation? So talk about the origin of the uh, uh, the energy board. Well, uh, so, uh, ways back now when that's uh, a couple of energy uh, windmills and hydrogen, wind uh, turbines and hydrogen companies start coming to, uh, to Bjorn Peninsula. Uh, you know, they, they reached out to all the towns, most of the towns that they were with, and uh, some of the LSDs. And uh, the mayors and the councils all on the Bjorn Peninsula side, you know, many times... Uh, we missed a boat, for a better terminology. We missed a boat that uh, we don't have a, a say or we don't have some input. This usually goes to provincial government. So uh, the municipalities on Peninsula decided that uh, with the Joint Community Council that we would uh, have a branch that would uh, form to be like a liaison to protect the economic uh, development of the Bjorn Peninsula. Uh, a lot of people are uh, concerned. We are not, we don't decide who gets the job. We are there to protect the economic and the environmental uh, impact and to protect the residents of the Bjorn Peninsula. And how you become a member, you had to get nominated. Of course, you had to be an elected official. And people say, well, how did they get on board? Well, you guys elected us to municipalities. Then the municipalities uh, uh, asked their councillors uh, who would like to be on this board. And once someone got on that board, they had to get nominated, uh, the same as they would. A motion had to be passed by their towns to become a member on the board, same as you would at the Joint Community Council. And when you got on the board, the board members all met, and then the board members decided to how to pick a treasurer, uh, uh, secretary, co-chair, and chair, and that came out of the 20-plus uh, members on the board. For 
information purposes, our board is very uh, one of the largest and successful boards because uh, the Burrow Peninsula, and of course myself, and they are the, everybody else on the board are looking after the economic and the safety and environmental impact of all these companies coming to our peninsula. So that's how we got formed, actually. So how do you incorporate all the varying voices on the peninsula? Because some people may indeed see nothing but economic upside when some of these proposals come to pass. Others will have varying concerns, whether it be about uh, monies involved and the proponents themselves and the environmental impact. So would you have the board open to public consultations or public meetings or public input? Or how can they find out exactly what the board is putting forward and who are you putting it forward to? Like, are you writing reports for the general public to consume? Are you writing reports for the provincial government? What exactly is the, the the player, the action that the board is taking? Well, actually, what we are, we're, we're just like an advisory board that uh, we pass on information, we sit down with all the players. Like right now, there was two large players that were interested in uh, uh, wind turbine, hydrogen ammonia plants on the Bjorn Peninsula. And the provincial government picked the component. Right now, we're such an early stage. I know people say we're at 18 months, but remember, as Patty, as you're well aware, uh, the EA uh, study has to be done by these companies and then approved before uh, any of these companies are awarded to actually start construction. What they're doing right now is doing the, uh, the studies for the environmental impact. The EA assessment is what they're doing. So right now, it's fairly preliminary, but uh, I'm so glad you asked that question. Matter of fact, today, uh, the company that is awarded uh, the freeze on the crown land and this region, uh, Everwind Fuels, has put out a beautiful question and answer because we had many people uh, asking questions, and we couldn't answer the questions because it's not our role to answer the questions, how they're doing their job. Our The role of the environment, uh, Energy Advisory Board is to protect and make sure that the residents of Bjorn Peninsula don't miss out on any economic development for the peninsula and to make sure that uh, the right uh, clogs are put in place so the environment is not affected or if it's affected, how it's affected, and make sure that we're going to be a liaison. And a lot of people will say, oh, well, we didn't know. Well, they had 47, and just for instance, uh, Everwind Fuels had 47 consultants, uh, 47 uh, town hall meetings, we'll say, going around to all the communities and most communities on the Bjorn Peninsula. And at that time, a representative that was actually me, We had I went at 42 and said that I was a representative of the Energy Advisory Board being the chair. And uh, we are not... Everwind Fuels. We're the ones that are going to uh, work with Everwind and any other company that wants to come here to make economic stability to the Bjorn Peninsula and to protect the environment and make sure that we can get the answers when the answers are available. I appreciate you making time for the show this morning, Mayor Keating. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That's Marystown Mayor Brian Keating. And of course, Everwind, pretty big proposal. The vast majority of the focus, of course, is attached to World Energy GH2 on the Port of Port Peninsula. But for everyone, they're talking about a 2 to 3 gigawatt wind farm. And the same play, green hydrogen, ammonia, shipped out for uh, export use elsewhere. So they talk about an investment of some $8 billion. It's a pretty big project. I think the total cost, when we talk about the completion of all phases of World Energy GH2, is more like $12 billion. But it's a big one. And, of course, as we know, there's only really ever been any public outcry 
generally speaking. Like, you know, of course, there's been people talking about maybe some concerns with Nexploits and or Everwind and or Argentia, but World Energy gets all of that attention. And they have this week resubmitted an amended, amended uh, environmental impact assessment. It is available in a variety of places on the Port of Port Peninsula for people to consume it. I have not had a chance to have a look at it yet this week. It's on my reading list for the weekend. How exciting am I at all? But my worry, and I would imagine a worry for many, is that it can't be so technically overwhelming that it's really hard to dig into whether or not I'm going to be able to understand it and or anyone else who goes to one of the various locations where the paper copy is available, which includes the World Energy offices in Stephenville itself. All right, let's take a break. Today's a good day to get on the show. Uh, talk about whatever's on your mind. If you hear topics that are of interest to you, you'd like to elaborate, do that. If you want to bring up something new, do exactly that. In you, if you're in and around town, it's 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, so someone's asked me, what are you talking about? When I was talking about the uh, issue regarding cursive handwriting. So, I'm not suggesting it's the biggest issue in the world of education, but just to further elaborate, maybe, you know, and the question was, I mean, do you think they'll waste time looking at things like that with the educational court? I don't really know. But so whether it be Dr. Ann Burke or Dr. Karen Goodenough, uh, when they get their feet under them, we'll try to invite one or both on the show to really talk about where we start. Because it's one thing to say the intended goal is to modernize and to transform the education system, but that's two pretty big words and what exactly they mean we're not 100% sure but we'll see if we can find out now when it as it pertains to the issue of cursive writing what we were saying and this is based on scientific research not my just personal opinion my my cursive handwriting is disgraceful it's terrible but the issue is that when we are not teaching cursive writing, for instance, there's plenty of people out there now in their teenage years, maybe in their 20s, never use cursive writing, maybe possibly can't even really uh, properly read cursive writing, and the research is clear. So it improves retention and comprehension. It's also about your fine motor dexterity. It gives children a better idea of how the words work in combination, and then it's how your brain uh, works when you're writing. The research says that if you have pen in hand and you're forming the letters to write a word, then the brain works at a certain uh, degree. If you're simply touching keys on a keypad, it's much less brain activity. Also, when they talk about the research into laptop users and taking of notes. So I'm sitting in the lecture theater and I'm listening to the lecture from my professor or my high school teacher, whatever the case may be. The person who is using the pen to take notes versus the laptop user. So Obviously, the laptop user can do things probably much more quickly, and for those who are trying to translate longhand notes, it's slower, and to paraphrase what's translating in speech to paper, but the process of transcribing enabled people to recall more of the information than the laptop note takers. And when you think about brain activity, it makes sense, doesn't it? Just simply going through the fine motor dexterity motion of writing a word, and it increases your ability to comprehend and to learn how to read and to spell, 
just think about it, because if I were going to write an I or a Q or a P or a T, it all comes with different motions. So my brain is actually actively involved with my hands. If I'm touching the keypad, then of course every key feels exactly the same, from a question mark to a capital A to a, a small Q. So we're not getting that type of feedback through our dexterous motions. So I think the curse of writing things is probably a little bit bigger than maybe some of the people who always saw the emails thought it was. And some of the emails are actually really quite funny. And one in particular that was telling me that I'm wasting time talking about stupid stuff like that. If there was 50 words in it, 30 of them were misspelled. So <laughs> maybe, just maybe there's something to it. All right, let's try to get to the breaks on time. Uh, when we come back, Marilyn's in the queue to talk about wind energy. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Marilyn, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you today? I'm doing fine, thank you. How about you? Oh, good, thank you. Good. I just want to start by thanking you to for having an open forum for the people all over Newfoundland who can call and speak about you know whatever they're passionate about in their area. Um, so thank you so much for that. Um, I just want to start by saying, uh, you know, you just announced how you can pick up the copies of the amended EIS from World Energy GH2 in Stephenville. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went in there on the 31st and, um, you know, I asked Mr. Hogan uh, for a copy and he said he's uh, expecting some to arrive from St. John's today and that he would be in touch or someone would be in touch with me um, to get a copy out to me or to to have it picked up. So um, I went on my business and um, he emailed me uh, 2.07 that day. I went in around, uh, probably around 1 o'clock. He emailed me at 2.07 p.m. and I can send you the email chain. He said, hello, Marilyn, thanks for stopping in today and requesting a copy of the World Energy GH2 EIS amendment document as submitted to the provincial government on January 30th. I indicated that we will be in receipt of these hard copies on Friday. Unfortunately, we only have enough for distribution to the regional library Libraries. Until such time that we arrange to have another copy sent out, I invite you to visit the department's website at blah, blah, blah. I will advise upon receipt. So I said, you know, thank you for letting me know any idea of the timeline for receipt of my requested copy. As you can imagine, viewing this online is very difficult, especially when poor internet service um, in our area. And I said, will World Energy GH2 be having public meetings on the Port-of-Port Peninsula to discuss concerns or answer questions in regards to the amendments? And then he came back and said, I'm going to redirect this inquiry over to our community engagement manager, Angela Gill. She will be able to provide details on any public information sessions being planned. And then um, she came back um, yesterday and said, Hi, Marilyn. Yes, we have public information sessions planned on February 12th, 12 to 5 p.m. and February 13th, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the community office, 13 Tennessee Drive, Stephenville. Please feel free to drop by then. Members of the World Energy GH2 Management team will be available to answer any questions you may have. Thank you. We look forward to seeing you. Now, I haven't responded yet, um, and this has been the same kind of rigmarole that we've been dealing with from day one. It's always skirting around the the question that we ask, and we never get a definite answer. Um, Yes, they're going to have public sessions in Stephenville, but that's, you know, where people are mostly in support of this project. When it comes to people on the peninsula, we feel
feel more comfortable being on our own ground and having people that can get more involved in the conversation because it's passionate to us because we're going to be living in this nightmare if this project ever proceeds ahead. Again, um, nothing about the copy of what I requested, uh, no timeline, and she didn't even address it in her email. So I don't even know when we'll receive a copy, but I just wanted to let people know that if you're going in there expecting a copy of this new amendment, that you're going to be in for a rude awakening. Yeah, let me just give out the list as was supplied to me. Now, if we're talking about the don't have enough printed copies, certainly inside even government's operations, they have their own printing department. So printing should not be an issue here. So they say they're going to be available at the public libraries, Bay St. George South, Cape St. George, Lourdes, St. George's, Stephenville, Stephenville Crossing, Upper Ferry, Cattery Valley, and also at the uh, offices of Rural Energy GH2. So if that has been the pledge, then let's make sure that everybody who wants a copy can get a copy. Simple. Exactly. That should be the least of our worries is, get, is uh, accessing yeah. a copy. And I mean, when you look at the libraries, I think Cape St. George is open from, you know, uh, five to seven or, you know, some like minuscule time in the evening. So, I mean, that's supper time for, for most people. Um, so it's very and, and very difficult to sit there and, and review such a massive document. I think the new amendment of and some people who have Mm-hmm. said that there was a lot of cut and paste, but I don't know. I haven't got there yet. But I just, um, I received the map yesterday of and Marilyn, your, your, our connection is breaking up, so make a move okay. six feet one way or the other, see if we can get it clearing it up. Can you hear No, still breaking up. Try again. Okay. Okay, how about now? That's good. Okay. When I went in to see Mr. Hogan, uh, first of all, the door was locked and security had to let me in. And the only reason is because I said I was going in to pick up something. Um, so they didn't expect me. Um, and there was two gentlemen. There was John Hogan and another gentleman I don't know. And I never met him before. Um, so, you know, it's not an open door policy when you go in there. At, at the but when I received yesterday, uh, you know, I think there's 155 turbines now instead of the 164. Uh, and then there's going to be some on Pine Tree Hill, which is, you know, right adjacent to the Port of Port Peninsula. And um, Hogan said that they're going to be the 656 or 654-foot um, turbines being placed here. So they are the, the massive turbines. And he said, oh, yeah, I heard that on the radio this morning, too. He said, but you can't believe everything you hear. And I just started to laugh because, you know, it's no use talking to these people about alternatives. And um, I just wanted just to, to voice my concern about the lack of, you know, EIS amendment copies and the fact that, you know, um, this is a massive project and we're only on a small peninsula. We have nowhere to go. The animals have nowhere to go. So we, you know, will be living with this nightmare if this ever goes to pass. 
And, um, you know, it's the vibration, it's the shadow flicker, it's the relentless construction for two years, the dust from the mines, the dust from, you know, the construction. Our roads are horrible. Um, our water, you know, is, is depleting uh, from mining. Um, you know, the noise, the, the, the lights on these turbines, you know, you can imagine 155 turbines with red lights on them blinking at night. Um, you know, uh, we had a meeting yesterday and, and one of the gentlemen there said, like in mainland on that side, where the turbines are going to be placed, they're going to be exposed to shadow flicker all day. And he said it could be like a strobing light all day because when the sun hits those blades and they're rotating at different times, it'll be like a strobe light effect. So anybody that has any issues with, um, uh, what do you call that, vertigo or, you know, are susceptible to... Um, epilepsy, you know, entire, whatever. Epilepsy, yes, yes. Thank you very much, Patty. My, uh, I, mean, I wasn't prepared to call in today, so I'm not really prepared for all this, but I just wanted to say that, you know, this is going to be uh, going to have a massive impact impact on the people here on the Port of Port Peninsula. And that is very scary to us, and it, it has been from day one, and it will continue to be uh, a very... Um, harsh threat to our lives and, and our homes. Uh, the Cape St. George Library hours, as per someone at the library, are 3 to 7 on Tuesday, Thursday, and 3 to 6 on Friday. So a little bit more time and not all supper hours. That was just a piece of info that someone asked me to pass along. Okay. Yeah. How okay. do we, or is it possible for us, to strike some sort of balance between environmental protection and economic activity because for folks in the area who are uh, all for this project they of course will be leaning on the opportunity to get a job and for what it means for economic activity in the region so how do you consider that potential economic upside with environmental right. protections or do you think you can well, I think we can. I mean, if they came in and said, okay, we're going to, you know, put 30, like, down the center of the Port of Port Peninsula and away from people's homes and, you know, the, the, the watersheds, then fine. Uh, I think we could, you know, make some kind of deal that way. But when you are putting 155 of these massive turbines that haven't been done before, on mountaintops, then no, absolutely not. No job is worth that because after the initial, you know, couple of years of construction, there'll be no more jobs in this area except for a few experienced people who will be working on the wind turbines themselves. So if, if the job was, you know, uh, down in central or if it was western or northern or southern i mean if it's in an area that is safe for the people that are living there then the people will travel for that work but you know just for a few jobs and after a few years uh when people can't live here anymore i mean really if you if you have a half a dozen on one and six on the other it just doesn't make sense to me you're going to have this boom and then it's going to be a bust and it's going to be a big bust and that's that's my feeling but if they came in and went down the center of and everybody, you know, was um, respectful of the environment and the people that live here, then fine. We could work with something like that. But I don't know, um, you know, if that's feasible for this company. It certainly wouldn't satisfy their business model. That much we know for sure. But that's neither here nor there. It's not my business model. Uh, I appreciate you making time for the show, Marilyn. Would you like to say anything else? No, that's it, Patty. Thank you very much for taking my call. Appreciate your time. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. And before we go, you know, there are still lots of things to, uh, yet to be fully understood. 
there's no provincial money, but there's the possibility for tons of federal dollars there, right? The range in subsidies is between 15% of operating uh, capital costs and 40%. So that's all going to boil down to the final definition of what constitutes green hydrogen. So we do know that in this province, about 80% of the power generated that World Energy GH2 would have access to is renewables, uh, very much unlike the province of Nova Scotia, for instance. So there's going to have to be some pretty clear and tight definition definitions associated with that because we're talking about substantial money. In the United States, they have very strict definitions of what constitutes uh, green versus gray-ish. Like in Nova Scotia, about 51% of the power is about coal or coke-fired. Very much unlike here. In it, and so there are no final investment decisions will be made until the federal government figures that much out. Then you talk about how green things really are. Because, yes, there's lots of different components that goes into making a wind turbine. Steel, copper, aluminum, there's a bunch of other precious metals, some recyclable plastics. And it's the thought that when wind farms became something, that after the lifespan, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 years-ish, I think, of for a, a wind turbine, a blade. So what happened was they would simply bury them which is not very green. So now some 96% of the components of wind turbine are from recyclable materials. So whether it be outer shell, the shafts, the gears, all the electrical components. So they're doing more and more to find out ways to recycle the turbines uh, uh, versus simply bury them, which is obviously not ideal. So there's a lot left to be understood there. But we are in the throes when we talk about the Port of Port Peninsula inside that 70-day window to see what's next. I can't presuppose the outcome, but I suppose what we all can do is sort of read between the lines a little bit. Leaders in the area, the provincial government, seems really quite bullish on these opportunities or these proposals. So whether it be the four the province has put forward and versus what's happening at the Port of Argentia with Pattern Energy, you know, it's not me saying it. The province signed on to an MOU. There's been lots of big business leaders that made their way to this province. There's been a contingent made its way to Germany. There's still some concerns about the eventual uh, cost of green versus other hydrogen options, of which there are many. We had a great conversation with a petrophysicist here on the show the other day, Denny Briere, in their quest for, uh, to discover more natural or white hydrogen so there's a lot left to be fully understood now there's folks who are all in that's it they think this is the uh, the next big opportunity in this world for a so-called transition fuel and then folks like maryland who their strict focus is on the environment and you want to take that on we can do it we said yesterday that there's a report coming out from the public utilities board talking about the two rate applications they're looking at from newfoundland power one for 1.5 percent rate increase this july another 5.5 percent next july but the pub here's the quote full recovery of Newfoundland power's costs, including forecast supply costs, could result in a significantly higher increase in customer rates than the 5.5% indicated in the application. So says the PUB. To take that on or whatever else uh, we could talk about is the province's consumer advocate, Dennis Brown. He's after this. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the province's consumer advocate. That's Dennis Brown. Good morning, Dennis. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It was just yesterday the Public Utilities Board met to schedule the procedures for the application process, yet they got out in front of it with a public press release saying exactly what I read before the news. Full recovery of Newfoundland Power's costs, including forecast supply costs, could result in a significantly higher increase in consumer rates than the 5.5% indicated in the application. Is this normal procedure? The Public Utilities Board has rarely done 
press releases or media briefings of any kind. So this is different, yes. Okay, so what do you make of it? Because this really feels like cart in front of the horse. Well, we have to look at what's going on here. Um, Newfoundland Power has uh, has an application for the board effective uh, July 1, 2024, this year, where they're looking for a 1.5% increase. They have that out there first and foremost. That's before we even deal with their rate of return. They're looking for an increase in their rate of return from 8.5% to 9.85%. Now, 8.5% is quite good, and it's been very effective for them because it's gotten them in profit uh, about uh, 47 million in this year. That's profit alone to their shareholder. But they're looking to increase the rate of return to 9.85, and that will increase their profits by, from what we can tell, at least another 9 million annually. So they're looking to increase their profits in this application from 47 million to over 55 million. Now, the likelihood of the board or any board giving them a 9.85% return is pretty remote. Uh, if you look at the bank, uh, what you get or anybody gets if they got some savings, you get 3%. And they're looking for 9.85%. So I don't think any board in the country will give Newfoundland Power that. Newfoundland Power has a monopoly in this jurisdiction. And... Uh, uh, quite often nationally, uh, other uh, other companies like Newfoundland Power are competing with uh, with propane and, and other forms of heat and other companies. But here they have an absolute monopoly. So uh, we've given notice that we're opposing all of these increases. Uh, Newfoundland Power is doing nothing to control its own costs or its own operations. Its operational costs have increased dramatically. And the board has given them free reign over capital spending. Their capital spending has increased dramatically over the last 10 years, and the board won't even hold a hearing on it, despite um, constant requests from consumer advocates this one and the previous one. So the board has some explaining to do at some point as to why they've operated in this particular fashion. Help people understand, you know, for instance, uh, the president of Flam Powers, Gary Murray, he says they need the increase because the company's replacing aging infrastructure, assets to better handle storms. Because if we think back to Liberty Consulting and the work they did regarding Dark NL, it was pretty much an issue regarding not keeping up the infrastructure concerns. And so consequently, we had rolling blackouts and brownouts for quite a long time, some people without power for a week. So how do we square that circle with the need to keep the grid reliable versus any potential rate increase to cover costs? How do you... How how do we address that? Well, we paid for that. We've already paid for the infrastructure. We're paying for that in our rates already. That's for their capital expenditure. So uh, that's done. What they are looking for now is an increase in their rate of return. They're looking for more profit. So that's what they're up to right now. The ratepayers of the province every year pay for infrastructure. So it's probably less than accurate for Newfoundland Power to be saying that these applications are about infrastructure because they are not.
Okay, so let's move on to another topic, unless you have something more to say about that. Uh, no, I think that the uh, ratepayers uh, understand fully the implications of this. Right now, we are paying 13.2 cents for a kilowatt. And in July every year, there's always an adjustment for the oil we're burning at Holyrood because we're still burning oil. And given the price of oil, uh, sometimes that adjustment goes up, sometimes it goes down. But Newfoundland Power is now getting into that area that, Ju- that July 1. July 1 was always about uh, fuel and the, uh, and the costing of fuel and us paying for the fuel that we burned uh, over the past winter at Holyrood. Now they're into looking, money, looking for money for more costs for themselves, and it looks like even a little bit of profit, that 1.5% they're, uh, they're looking for. Um, all this has to be dealt with by the board in no uncertain terms because the we don't yet we're not yet paying for muskrat falls the cost of muskrat falls uh, the government is on record as saying that uh, a, a kilowatt should uh, go no greater than uh, 15 cents well we're at 13.2 cents already we got newfoundland power coming in with these uh, these uh, exaggerated applications because I think the the idea that they would uh, seek 9.85% is, is an unreasonable expectation. Uh, also, we're not getting complete disclosure. Uh, Newfoundland Power sends out a press release. They got this soft sell saying, you know, yeah, that's only going to cost you another $1.50 a month and et cetera, et cetera. But they don't tell people what they are looking for the money for. They should put it down, the cost, and and tell them, tell people, say, by the way, this 9.85, that will give us another $9 million in profit. That's what this is all about. They should have to state that. And this time, before the board, we will be looking for a board order so that in the future there is complete disclosure when Newfoundland Power uh, looks for a rate increase, or hydro for that matter. They'll have to tell us completely what the money is, how much money they're looking for, and not hide away with all these vague percentages, which uh, no one really can quite understand. Yeah, and you mentioned the July 1st uh, rate changes uh, regarding the amount of fuel consumed. That's the rate stabilization program. There has been some fluctuations and even a little bit of return there a few years ago on that plan because the cost of fuel was lower than forecasted. That's true. That's neither here nor there, I suppose. I know that this is not necessarily directly a provincial matter, but it might be. With the Nova Scotia government having to pick up some of the slack on behalf of Nova Scotia Power and Amera, some $117 million, and part of that news story includes that they did not receive the expected amount of energy from Muskrat Falls. So, two questions. Do we understand what the shortfall is in our contractual obligation to uh, Amera on the other side? And two, is there a pending legal concern here? Because the government of Nova Scotia is not just going to shrug their shoulders and say, oh, well, that's okay, $117 million, here you go. So, how do we read the implications of that news story? Well, under the agreement uh, between what was then uh, Nelcor and uh, Nova Scotia Power, um, the if Muskrat Falls Power was not delivered on time uh, to Nova Scotia, 
then uh, and for for reasons uh, that that we have here, you know, the, uh, the the problems we're having with construction and and the problems we're having of getting the power down uh, consistently. Uh, Nova Scotia will pick up that at the end of the contract. So, so the contract, if the contract didn't kick in on time, uh, the the contract, I think it's a 35-year contract, yeah. uh, will all be long gone by then, Patty. But uh, by the time it all uh, comes. Uh, it comes to fruition uh, if there's uh, a few years owing, uh, but going on that end of it. Now there may be other issues uh, when you're dealing with contracts and uh, and uh, and lawyers, and uh, there's always a way to be found, I guess. But uh, uh, our kickback or our, our 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 takeoff on that will be: look, you have the right at the end of the contract uh, to to make up that deficiency that uh, that you have right now. Yeah, because there's a percentage of the what the firm output they call 824, even though it won't generate 824 of actual firm output. So maybe over the course of 35 years, you know, if we owe them 22 percent, maybe it could be 23 and a half. So we don't have big financial implications at the end of 35 years, which I do believe is the number, the length of that contract. And not coincidentally, it's about the lifespan of the maritime link anyway. So there's a lot there. Uh, anything else, Dennis, before we take a break? No, uh, consumers now can. Uh uh, and I'll be in touch with uh, the ratepayers uh, over the period of uh, uh, this hearing. This hearing uh, will commence uh, uh, in in a couple of months, but uh, it will be June before we're into the final part of it. So I will try to inform consumers as much as I can. But uh, Newfoundland Power has some explaining to do. They should tell ratepayers exactly how much more they're looking for in profit, how many more millions. People understand that, and they shouldn't be able to hide away and uh, just say, "Oh, this is only going to cost you a dollar fifty a week or whatever, dollar fifty a month." Uh, this soft sell uh, is not appreciated. Ratepayers have nothing further to give to Newfoundland Power right now. They're giving them enough, so they're making forty-seven million dollars in profit, nearly four million a month in this small jurisdiction. I mean, what else are they looking for, really? We will invite President uh, Murray on the show at his earliest convenience, and appreciate your time as usual, Dennis. Thanks very much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Dennis Brown is the province's consumer advocate. Let's take a break. When we come back, Graham is in the queue to talk about the Municipal Conduct Act and information regarding World Energy GH2. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Graham. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you, sir. Welcome to the show. Um, thank you. <coughs> Um, just want to make a comment about uh, what Mr. Brown said, and uh, I want to agree wholeheartedly with everything he said. People have to uh, sort of uh, separate uh, Newfoundland Light and Power, uh, or Newfoundland Power and Newfoundland Hydro, which is the government, of course. And it's the, the submission before the board is for more profit. They want to increase their rate of return, uh, Newfoundland Power. It's a private company, and they want a higher profit. I agree totally. They should not be allowed uh, to have that. Okay, that's not my, my uh, reason. Okay. But I will mention another previous caller who was uh, saying that she couldn't get any information or a copy of the GH2 additional information that was submitted. I mean, it was only submitted two days ago. Uh, but I have read it. It is online, all of it. It's 503 pages. 
and uh, I'll get into that a little bit later. But first of all, what I would like to talk about is the Municipal Conduct Act and the Stephenville Council. Um, there were, you know, firstly let me say it's elementary in any democratic society that you cannot be judge and jury in any complaint about yourself. Now, I submitted a complaint. There was other, lots of complaints submitted by other people. I have not seen them. I'm talking about mine alone. Um, I submitted a complaint under the Act as uh, it was the only vehicle really available to complain about it. And, of course, uh, what happened is it went through the process, and uh, I watched a deputy mayor who was the person, one of the persons, uh, along with the mayor, um, named in my complaint. Um, so uh, <laughs> uh, she had to be coaxed by the previous CAO, Colin Maddock, to uh, say one word about the complaint, and that was dismissed. Now, when you see that, you, you sort of, uh, you know, shake your head and say, well, she was the subject of the complaint, and she's dismissing it herself. Well, that's, that's elementary. You, you can't do that. However, there is a, a caveat to that, and uh, that is that um, the, 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 com the, com the only remedy to that, of course, is a, uh, an appeal to the Supreme Court of Newfoundland. And, uh, of course, that involves a lot of paper and lawyers, and I'm not interested in that. Let me just tell you what the complaint was was about. It was about the Mayor Rose and uh, regarding his behavior and cooperation and support and wasting money supporting the purchase of uh, the airport uh, YJT by Mr. Carl Diamond, who seems to be missing for the last few months. Nobody's heard of him, seen anything, or... Uh, the mayor of Stephenville has been the self-appointed spokesman and uh, no one else. So any information coming out comes from him, and that's a, a clear conflict in my opinion. Now, the, uh, the Municipal Act doesn't contemplate, as it's written, investigating corruption or behaviors of mayors in, in deals like this. And uh, unfortunately, it, it, it'll have to be, or, you know, that stuff will have to be written into it. It'll have to be changed. You know, Mr. Diamond, uh, of course, as you know and you've talked about before, you can't get him on this show. Nobody seems to know where he is. Uh, he was able to uh, obtain a $1.1 million mortgage provided by a lottery winner out in Saskatoon. Now, <clears throat> I'm wondering how much of his business did Diamond have to give up to get such a non-traditional mortgage. You know, that's usually how these things work. Um, Rose and Diamond together have put out basically lies and obfuscation over the past two years. The place has had no regularly scheduled airline service since uh, January 21. Sunwing and Porter have supplied seasonal service in the summer with once weekly flights. Neither returned in 2023. The airport's about as forlorn today as it was before, before uh, you know, it was sold. There's no, there's nothing that's happening there. There's no indication from any airlines that any of them will return. Airlines know their markets pretty well, as you know, and are now consolidating in the way they operate. They won't provide a new service without partner investment, and and you you talked about that a lot in terms of the St. John's and Halifax competition for a UK connection. I think St. John's ended up with a weekly connection to Dublin. Uh, so you know things are changing in that business, and people have to be aware of that. Um, it's not it's not like it used to be. The airlines know these markets, 
And I've always said, and I've said for years, um, that uh, if the airlines could make money here in Steamville, they'd be here. And it's that simple. Um, now, maybe well, with the potential uptick in economic activity that might make some sort of business case for some frequency of flights, and in reference to the borrowing from a lot of winner, fair Paul, uh, but it doesn't necessarily have to come with an equity stake because there's all sorts of lending arrangements that could be either a piece of the pie or simply a repayment schedule. So we have no earthly idea how that works. And I've tried repeatedly over the last number of weeks and months to have Mr. Diamond back on the show, and we'll keep at it. Okay, that's good. Uh, hello, are you there? Yes, I am, sir. Okay, I, I missed your uh, <laughs> your response. Um, anyway, <clears throat> um, yeah, you, you need to find the guy. That's the first thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but with GH two, the lady um, um, was—I uh, I think she was sort of upset that there was nobody there to open the door immediately, and that the printing is not done, and so forth and so on. And, and I'm very, very sure I've always had excellent cooperation anytime I've talked to them, and I've talked to them quite a bit. One interesting point in the—it's in section, I think it's two point two point four or five of the additional information. There's 503 pages of it. Uh, is that the? Uh, it states that the construction camp for the uh, project itself, uh, which will be for about 1,200 to 1,600 persons, that will be built on the eastern portion of the airport property. And not only that, a new wastewater treatment facility will have to be built for it because the Stephenville facility can't handle the extra load, according to the document. And uh, this means that more benefits will accrue to the new owner, in addition to a 20-year lease that they've already signed for laydown space. So the unfortunate thing that um, um, I see in this whole matter, and, and for the past two years, Tom Rose has been a non-voting Tom Rose. Uh, I'm sorry, Tom Rose has been a, a non-voting town liaison member of the Stephenville Airport Corporation board. $10 board meetings, and he supported Diamond to the hilt, finally resulting in a deal to sell Diamond. And now, this was a terrible decision by the board, and all the promises by Diamond so far have resulted in absolutely nothing. They've announced dated promises for two or three airlines coming to serve YJT in 2022, building a new terminal, all kinds of things like that, and they've never even applied for an environmental assessment, which all that stuff would be building would uh, require. So to me, it's, it's, it's all garbage. And uh, unfortunately, the board uh, was, uh, because of Tom Rose's, uh, uh, in my view, improper influence, um, decided to sell to this guy. All they had to do was wait because uh, the GH2 project was known to be coming, and any benefits now that accrue to that airport are going to go to Mr. Diamond. Not the townspeople, not the people of Newfoundland who supported the thing for nearly over 10 years with a line of credit. That's the only thing the airport operated on was a line of credit. If they didn't have that, they'd have to close. Yeah, and some transfers of money from the town itself. Pardon me? And some transfer of money from the town itself. Well, not only that, there was the town applied for a $250,000 grant from EIT in in, uh, 2021. They got this grant, 215000 of it was to pay for an absurd 
contract with a company called Wasco, which is the Winnipeg Air Services Corporation, and it's essentially the Winnipeg Airport. And it they spent two hundred fourteen thousand dollars on it, paying out fifty thousand bucks at a at a crack uh, to the airport to to operate, and it. There was absolutely no benefit, nothing, no benefit to this airport. There's no service, no nothing. And the purpose of that contract was to renew and revitalize the airport. Just garbage. And the whole thing stinks to high heaven. And uh, I think it, 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 uh, very unfortunate. Certainly, you know, not a morally correct uh, process in any way, shape, or form. No one even knew the airport was for sale before September 9, 2021, when Mr. Diamond and Mr. Rode made, Rose made the big announcement. I mean, it's absurd. We'll keep anyway, chasing it as best uh, we can. Uh, Graham, I'm late for the news, but I'll give you the final word. Well, I'm just saying that it's a terrible situation that exists, requires an investigation, uh, and uh, the the Municipal Conduct Act, uh, you know, we hoped would get this kind of investigation, but the act doesn't contemplate investigating corruption. So uh, that's, I'll just like, leave it at that. The whole thing needs to be investigated by authorities. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Graham. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're going to talk with the passing of Rick Boland, and Jim Dim would like to respond to comments made by Minister Osborne, on, I guess on this program uh, recently. Then there's a caller that wants to talk about exposure to mold. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John's Centre. He's the leader of the party. That's Jim Din. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Thank you, Patty. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. I wanted to take, I've uh, been doing a little bit of reflecting uh, since your interview with uh, Minister Osborne and Ron Johnson on uh, Wednesday, and, but, uh, and especially with regards to Minister Osborne's, I guess, uh, commitment to, or um, uh, commitment to, the, uh, to, to addressing the travel nurses' issues. But if I could, Patty, before I get into that, I'd just also like to, to re- reflect on, I guess, another piece of news. That was the passing of Rick Bolin. And uh, and even now the news of uh, of Kevin Lewis, who uh, I knew through the uh, Holy Heart when I taught there. But Rick, I there are many accolades out there already. But I got to know Rick really well when I was running as uh, my first time as uh, in, for provincial politics as for the St. John's Center. And Rick uh, was on the uh, on a part of the campaign team, uh, came along with a few others. And I I will tell you that for for a, a relative novice in that area, for me. I'm referring to. Uh, it was good to have Rick's um, a steadying hand, a warmth, a sense of humor, um, efficiency, uh, knowledge of the uh, of, uh, of data and the and the and the political process, and, uh, and 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 that's positivity. I will tell you the one. I won't go into it now, but part of the best story that had uh, people uh, in laughter was his story of the. Uh, the chickens uh, and who uh, that got drunk on eating fermented berries. But uh, I will tell you that that's one story that uh, you know that uh, kept people entertained because a campaign at time a month it seems short, but when you're in it, it seems like a long time and it has many twists and turns. But I will always have to remember that Rick, you know, he was at uh, man. I, I, 
for a newcomer to the world uh, of uh, politics in that way, uh, he was a, a good person to have on the team. And I had the pleasure, I guess, he was also a constituent of mine in St. John's Center. So uh, I just do want to pass on my condolences to his friends, his family, to the theater community. I know he'll be missed, but uh, I do have some very fond personal memories of him as well, and to the family of Kevin Lewis as well. Yeah, same for me. I knew Kevin a bit more than Rick, but did have an opportunity to meet and spend some time with both. And, you know, here we are in the year of the arts, a back-to-back, some pretty significant losses this week. It is. It's, it's, uh, it's hard to take. When I heard the news of Kevin Lewis's passing, I thought I was mishearing it. I said, wow, that's back-to-back, and it's, uh, it's a significant loss. And I knew Kevin, uh, not as much, uh, well, uh, about the same, I guess, as Rick in many ways, but he uh, he had to, he was connected with the uh, Holy Heart uh, um, staff, and I knew him through uh, his colleagues, uh, you know, Gordon, uh, uh, Gord Ralph, and uh, who were big into theater, into the theater world, and and uh, certainly were key to instrumental into the theater program at Holy Heart. So significant people for sure no question did you have more you wanted to say about minister osborne's comments yeah you know i i've been been thinking about that that interview and you asked some very uh, i i think some very important and detailed questions and uh, you know whether it was the compass group phone med but it was the travel nurses piece because i'm wondering about like at at, at time I, I talked about whether questioning his commitment to to addressing the issue and whether he's flip-flopping because on one hand i heard in that interview that uh, the minister by his own words he's been a leader at the table with uh, with uh, addressing this and that he recognizes the uh, the uh, the morale issue caused by uh, the, the use of uh, uh, of travel nurses uh, and at the same time I think I was only in your in the last time he was on with you uh, I think you had him on that was not the last week the week before it had to do with uh, his comment was that you know, uh, he mentioned me by name and uh, talked about like they put it, placing an end date on the use of travel nurses was problematic. Um, so I, I and at the same time here, uh, uh, we still hear that, but uh, there seems to be a recognition of the problem that's being that's created by travel nurses. And I would argue this: what and what I was and when we put out when we announced the uh, the vacancies, nursing vacancies. We, t- we asked for an end date, and I guess, Patty, asking for an end date or a sunset clause, and I believe you talked about at the time to uh, non-compete clause in contracts and so on and so forth, but if you're setting a date, I would assume it's no, no different than setting a date for the dissolution of, uh, of the Newfoundland Labrador English School District and its integration into the, uh, into the department. If once you set a date, you start working towards that date and putting the plans in place uh, that you need to work towards that. So. And and I think you addressed this as well, like you know the the shift, the the uh, the, the shock of, uh, of of saying we're no longer going to use them. There's going to be that short-term pain. But I do believe that we can mitigate that by by having that plan to uh, to uh, work to work towards that. Now the minister did say that there is a portion of nurses uh, that enjoy the higher rate of pay and enjoy the travel component. But I will tell you from talking to nurses. 
it's 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 about the higher rate of pay. It's about the flexibility and schedule and the ability to have autonomy over one's work life and to achieve that work life balance. And I think in the end, that's where you know it, it, it's going to have to come down to addressing the issues in the workplace. As nurses have constantly brought up violence, mandatory overtime. Um, I talked to one nurse, uh, an emergency room nurse, last week, who talked about you know a 24-hour shift, no breaks, uh, and like that. That's basically uh, and and the emergency room is on wheels is the best way to describe it. So I think in many ways when when I'm talking about and when we're calling for a, uh, an end date or a sunset date, we're not just simply we're not simply asking for um, you know uh, just to stop using them. You can't do that unless you start looking at a addressing the issues and then uh, know, first of all knowing what the problem is, making sure you clearly understand the problem, and and then how how do you go about uh, sort of shifting that money I guess that's going into travel nurses back into the public health care system so that it incentivizes nurses to stay in the system. We can recruit all we like, but if we haven't addressed those issues and if they figure that and nurses that are coming here figure they can get a, a higher rate of pay by going to another province that's where they're going to go so I, I like on one hand I'm hearing from the minister that he recognizes the uh, uh, the morale uh, issue and the and the problems ca- caused by it and that he's been a leader at the table I think then if he's going to be a true leader at the table with his ministers we know that there are other provinces have brought in this uh, this the end date then maybe he needs to be lobbying strongly and convincing his counterparts across province that we we uh, across the country that we do this together uh, that would be my comment on it. I, I, on one hand, I'm hearing, yeah, uh, he recognizes the problem, but on the other hand, he seems reluctant to put that end date there, which I think would then force government uh, to to at least start to work towards that, that deadline and started having having a plan in place long before then. Yeah, uh, unless it's all hands on deck, it's probably not going to work. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to dispute exactly what the minister said, but I, maybe there's an exaggeration of all of a sudden all the travel nurses will just leave our system and move elsewhere. I'm pretty sure that's not accurate. You know, we don't need the feds involved any more than they currently are in healthcare, but it's going to take some national guidance and cooperation, you know, to set reasonable pay metrics, because we're now in the bidding war. There's going to take some cooperation to deal with issues like the uh, travel nurses. I have a couple of them really quite cross with me saying, who am I to say that there shouldn't be travel nurses? No, we're talking about the protection of the public system. It's not picking on one person or another, but there's a cost-related implication here that is of concern. There is the erosion of some of the features of the public system as we are traditionally used to. Not to say that the way it was or the way it is works because it doesn't, but if the protection of the public system is paramount, which it seems to be given the fact we have legislation called the Canada Health Act, then maybe, just maybe, we've got to figure this out. Because even the current way it's working, I would suggest it's working really well, short term for the travel travel agency nurses, but that's big time gain today without having the attention to the long-term benefits afforded to the public system RNs. So there's, I think, a happy medium here. How we get there is going to require an awful lot of cooperation versus uh, provinces that have the deep pockets not worried about it, able to spend the money versus some of the other smaller provinces that are really kind of strapped for cash and provincial debt loads are very different across the country. Yeah. So it's not a, a level playing field to begin with. Jim, i got to get to the break, but I'll give you the final word. Look, I agree with what you're saying, but the fact is we're putting this money into the travel agent and the, into the travel agency nurses. Uh, so wh- I guess it comes down to not only setting the, the, the end date, but what money did, how, can we incentivize nurses to return to the public 
public system and to stay into it. And that's what it comes down to. We're already spending money, probably more than we need to on, on, the, on the travel nurses. How do we take that money and, and invest in the incentives to keep nurses in the system and maybe attract nurses back to the system? Appreciate the time. Thanks, Thank Jim. You. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. Jim Din, NDP member, St. John Centre, leader of the party. Final break. When we come back, mold exposure and the Minister of Immigration Population Growth is Jerry Byrne. I'd like to get some more elaboration on his comments regarding the redfish allocation. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Okay, let's see here. Line number four. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How about you? Okay. Not good, but I'm trying to be. Um, I'm a lady that was exposed to mold, my husband and I, back in 2018. I've been sick for five years. I've gone to my doctor's. They treated me for mold in different parts of my body, like I had it in my husband, I had it in our bowels, in our gut. Right now, I have it in my sinus. Every fall when the weather gets cold or damp, I get sinus problems. I don't have no pain in the sinus, but I fill up with thick white mucus or thick clear mucus. I need, I can't get tests done. Uh, unless there's a special form filled out. It's called the Laboratory Test Special Authorization Form. I didn't know who else to deal with today, only you. Eastern Health apparently does the test. I had other blood work done by different doctors. They've done all kinds of tests on me, and except mycotoxins. In order to find mycotoxins in your body, I might be a little emotional if I am. Please excuse me. It's okay. Go ahead. Uh, mycotoxins got to be checked if you do a urine test or blood work. And I was I had all my blood work and stuff done, and it comes back okay. Except Saturday, I ended up in the hospital and had cardiac. So I'd see a cardiologist, and he told me that I got a mild heart failure. So I talked to one of my retired paramedics, what do you call them, ambulance drivers, paramedics, Paramedics, right, Mm -hmm. driver, and he he looked up different things because he knows different things about it, and he said, yes, you could have a mild heart attack with uh, mycotoxins in your body. But no, but I've been to my family doctor. He won't do it. I've been to, I've called a couple of walking clinics. I photocopied leverage and sent to them. They won't do because they say it's too much involved. But Patty, all I want to do is get well. I want to be back to myself. I don't want no money or anything in it. And they seem to think it's law cases involved. There's no law case involved, Patty. So like that, I guarantee you. What are you hoping that I might be able to do to help you out this morning? I was wondering if you can tell me who I can contact to get the test done. Do you know? I tell you what, at the hospital they told me you can get a CIRS uh, test done for chronic inflammatory, but I didn't need that. So they told me the quickest one to get done would be a, a urine test to look for myco-MYCO toxins in the body. And that would be a urine test. And they told me it's done at uh, public health under MICRO biology. So I tell you I what don't I'm, know what to do. I tell you what I'm going to do is as soon as the show is over, I'm going to see if I can get someone in public health to give me a direct piece of advice that I can pass on to you. If they give me anything at all that I think can help, I'll call you back personally. 
I really appreciate that so, so much. I don't know what to do with myself. I I go to bed every night. I used to work in chiropractic, and my chiropractor told me to clean out my nasal passage every night to drain it from the sinuses and drain it up off my chest by using cayenne pepper, and it's done wonders for me. At nighttime, I can, I can get to sleep. I just put a Q-tip in cold water, tip, dip both ends in, and then I swab out both nostrils. And the amount of uh, mucus that comes out of my head is unreal. And then I have to cough it up, and I'm okay to go to bed. It's uh, what it is is the bioflim, which is the slime. <laughs> And the mycotoxins can be poisonous. Let me see what I can do to s- try to find some f- somewhere to point you, give you some advice. I'll do whatever Please. I can right after the show. I thank you so, so much. My pleasure. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time. Let's keep going. Line number five, the uh, Liberal member for Cornerbrook. He's the Minister of Immigration, Population, Growth, and Skills, Jerry Byrne. Minister Byrne, you're on the air. Well, thanks for having me on, Patty. Uh, David, your producer, of course, called me at 10.30 looking to get me on. I don't know if we're going to have a huge amount of time. I think there's only about three minutes left. Yeah, we don't, but we can revisit some of the outstanding issues on uh, some day next week. But just sure. elaborate as to why you're gobsmacked and enraged and calling the DFO decision on Redfish intellectually and morally bankrupt. Why? Well, I don't know if we could do that in three minutes, but I'll give it a shot. Here's the situation, is that this is the first ground fish reopening of any magnitude, of any consequence, since the closure of Northern Cod in uh, 1992. Of course, Gulf Redfish closed in 1995. It's been closed for 30 years. And one of the lessons that we have learned, or should have learned, I think we have learned, and this should have been on full display by DFO in its decision related to Gulf Redfish is, Protect the resource by making sure you do not create an insatiable appetite by uh, by capacity, by building too many uh, plants and too, building too many boats that depend on a resource that will create an insatiable appetite for that moment onwards, whether or not the resource uh, is there or not. And what they have done, Patty, is very simple. They have given the vast, vast majority of the resource to a group of offshore companies which do not have any boats that could fish this, do not have any plants which can utilize it, do not have plant workers that can work in those plants that don't exist. They'll have to, after they build them, they'll have to bring in temporary foreign workers instead of uh, providing the resource to boats that are already in the Gulf of St. Lawrence that are starving because the redfish are eating their shrimp and don't have any more shrimp to catch. So basically, in essence, it's this is that instead of actually giving resource to capacity which exists, which would not result in any further insatiable appetite for resource, they gave it to a group of companies, offshore companies, which are basically going to be demanding from here to the moment that they build their boats in Romania, uh, build their plants uh, bring in their temporary foreign workers to work in those plants, uh, build the, f- the freezing capacity that's necessary, they have just created what history has told us not to do. And we can pick up where we left off someday next week. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but appreciate yours, and we'll reach out to your office early next week. 
Appreciate it. All the best for you. Thanks, Jerry. Bye. Thank you, Minister. All right. Uh, good show today. Uh, very quickly, before I run out of time, a gentleman just emailed me. He lost his wallet at the Canadian Tire at the Peninsula Mall yesterday. So he went to Canadian Tire to have a look for it, couldn't find it. So there's no cash, and he just really wants the wallet back so he can retrieve the cards that are in. The wallet is a red Velcro wallet. It's really quite worn out. But if you found that wallet and would like to return it to the owner, please reach out to us, and we will connect you with the rightful owner. Good show today. Big thanks to all hands who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend, and we'll talk again on Monday. Bye-bye.